Hi, all. I am Jen. It is Wednesday la, night. La, la. <laughs> Welcome to Generational Change. I'm Jen. I'm Peter. And we're going to find out what the history of neoliberalism is. We are. And I'm on. very excited about this because this one, I actually did the audio. I did the audio. Like, I have the hard copies for the last few, but I, I did the audio. And I, I'm very, I have well, a lot of, I've, well, the history I've, of, I've taken copious notes, as always. The history of neoliberalism is, you, uh, I, I'm quite responsible for that. Oh, uh, you definitely have a big a, part in this book. Uh, There's a big part of you in this book. I definitely was not a good person, and uh, but we wanted to make America great again, and we certainly oh, tried. Didn't God, we? please go. People forget that there was a massive, massive. You know, everyone talks about the the. the there's been in the, the course of th every generation, there is one massive stock market crash, and it's usually as a result of the system. 1929, and there was one in 1987 that people really forget about. I don't forget about it because my father was actually a successful commodities trader. And then when the crash happened in 87, we as a family were basically in poverty for several years. And that's what happens when your career is built on a house of cards. The whole thing about as far as I'm concerned, all of that, that whole entire sector is an entire grift. Well, and the only and the only people that benefit from that is like what percentage of people. So then he decided just to manage other people's money. So I guess whatever. <laughs> But so is the system of capitalism that unfortunately is uh, hanging by a thread at this point. As we all know, uh, there is massive transition that is coming in this country. There is a lot to talk about tonight. We will talk about it with Tom as we will with our guest, Max Alvarez, uh, and others that will be coming on to discuss the railroad strike. Uh, labor is the great counterbalance to neoliberalism. But there is a lot to learn about how labor was more than any other sector in our society, devastated by the years of Reaganism and Clintonism up until where we are today. You know, so, this is what we're going to be talking with Tom about. So I, not, you didn't write this book. I didn't. I don't want to hear. I, I just, I, I just, well, I'm getting ready for a dissertation. Right. Well, so and it's really good because a few weeks ago, if, if anybody hasn't seen it, we had Lily Geismer on and we talked about her book, Left Behind, which very much sort of chronicled um, what happened with the Democratic Party in terms of it leaving labor and embracing corporatism. Um, and so this is sort of like right up there with that. So for me, it's like, you know, it's a continuation of the same sad discussion. In the history of neoliberalism in America. Yeah. The hidden history of neoliberalism. The hidden. See? Yeah. I've got to make sure that yes. I spell it correctly. That I is very it. important. Yes. So for those of you who are watching, please make sure to subscribe if you aren't already. Smash that like button. Comment if you will, because we want to get this thing out there to as many people as possible, because this is a very important history lesson that we're all going to have. If you want to know why, we are on the precipice of our, literally, our economy and perhaps even our economic system in many ways collapsing. There is a reason why this is happening. This is 40 years worth of maybe even more now. It's a neoliberal. It's plus problem. 40 years of bad economic policy mm -hmm. that is ascribed by both parties. Post-New Deal. Post-New yes, Deal. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And of course, you know him. He is a best-selling author of multiple books, and he is the host of the Tom Hartman program. And the Hidden History, there's a series, okay? This this is Hidden History of American Healthcare. Great, great book, I yeah. must say. They're all great uh, books. Yeah, I know what kind of bias in some ways. But, they are, you know, but for like people them. who it's, it's, you know what, they're, they're short, that they're manageable and it explains it and it consolidates the, the most important parts into a small book. Like, I think it's very helpful. Well, I'm ready to learn. Okay. I think Jen's ready to learn. I hope you're all ready to learn. <laughs> 
Who are Tom, you, Mr. Rogers? Well, I, I kind of feel like we're talking about Mr. Rogers no. because I Lord knows we're learning a lot from you. Yes. Tom Hartman, welcome back to Generational Change. Hey, Jen, Peter. Thank you so much for having me. That's a heck of a story, Peter, about your dad. That's amazing. Yeah, uh, he uh, he literally went from driving a Porsche to driving a Honda hatchback. And I remember it well. It was. Uh, okay. But you know what? Um, that's the system we live in. It is yeah. a it is a very kill or be killed system. And now more than ever, we're really seeing it front and center. And while I think a lot of people have a basic understanding of what really transpired and more or less what led up to the Reagan revolution, and then obviously everything that's transpired in pretty much every presidency that has succeeded and afterwards, I think there's a lot to learn about how we got there and what we could do right now, because in many ways, and again, Jen, you certainly would know more about this based on the details of the book, but I think a lot of it begins and ends with labor. That's that's a really big part of it. And obviously, we'd love to hear uh, your sentiments regarding you know where you would begin in terms of, was there that big bang moment that really led to this sort of onslaught of just double K. Thank you so okay, much. Okay, so let me let me say this. This is the this is the key thing. Is Tom? What is? I mean, I know, but what is neoliberalism? Because I think that that is one of those words that gets thrown around a lot and just conflated with liberal conservative. Oh, you're a neolib, or you're this. And yeah, sometimes it is correct. But would you just explain, like, when when you're saying neoliberal, what what we're talking about? Neoliberalism is a, an economic and political philosophy that was developed in the 40s by a group of economists in Europe. Um, there was one American, Milton Friedman, among the bunch. Um, in Europe, the word liberal means what we would call libertarian here or conservative economics, uh, you know, laissez-faire, hands-off economics, small government. And uh, these guys wanted to one-up <laughs> that. And so they became the new liberals, the neoliberals. They were trying to um, harden... They were trying to come up with a system that would make sure that uh, there was no repeat of the rise of fascism in Europe, Spain, uh, Italy, Germany, flipping fascist, or the, the rise of communism. They were trying to prevent either of those things from happening. And being economists, they thought they could do it through economics. And so the core principles of neoliberalism are that anything that distorts the marketplace is bad, uh, like labor unions, which distort the marketplace in their opinion. Uh, regulation. They're big fans of deregulation. Um, any kind of government, uh, government basically doing anything other than running courts, the police and the army is bad. Um, so all government functions should be privatized. Um, the, uh, the, 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 the market itself should be making the rules by which it operates because it's the most informed player in the marketplace. And so ultimately markets should even run democracies which is a little crazy. That's like saying that the NFL should stop regulating football and instead whichever team won the most games last year gets to decide how many players they have on the field this year, um, you know, versus other teams. But, you know, that was their theory. And, and out of that then comes the idea that the players that are the most successful in this competition, this Darwinian process of figuring out who's the smartest capitalist, um, the billionaires and the giant corporations, that they shouldn't have to pay taxes because that inhibits their ability to keep the economy going with these job creators, you know. And and, and also, finally, that uh, monopolies and inequality are not bad things, that these are actually signs that the economy is working properly because the, the winners are actually winning. 
Okay. And the, the one thing that I kept noticing, well, two, two key things. One is when we hear liberal, we tend to think left and Democrat, but the reality is this is a nonpartisan thing that's been going on. This is an economic movement that really is, you know, beyond the party system. And then the other thing is how it intersects with capitalism. Because I feel like, you know, you, you can have to some extent some capitalism, um, but when you add in the neoliberal policy to it, it just it's just run amok. And that's a critical point, Jen. That's like probably the most critical point. You know, capitalism is nothing more than a game, just like football. And if you don't have rules for the game that not only allow the game to perpetuate itself, but allow the players of the game to feel like they have, you know, a, a fair shot at the game and allow the spectators to the game, the, 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 the more peripheral participants um, to get what they need out of the game. Um, just like with football, you know, like the metaphor I used just a second ago, it doesn't work. And this is what's happened. I mean, neoliberalism, you could you could argue, is is simply a wildly deregulated capitalism. It brings you. Uh, as we've seen through the examples of Chile, Iraq, Russia, and the United States now, it brings you the uh, the world that Charles Dickens wrote about. That was basically a neoliberal time. Um, you know, when you had a 1% top 1%, you had about a 4 or 5% middle class, which was doctors, lawyers, shopkeepers. You know, Scrooge in A Christmas Carol was a small businessman. He was the middle class. And then you got the 95% of the working poor. That's what you get with neoliberalism. That's what you get with unregulated capitalism. And that was the big innovation that FDR brought into the fore. And, and frankly, Lincoln had earlier on, which is a whole kind of another history, um, which is heavily regulating capitalism can make it work, just like heavily regulating football. You know, the NFL has got a huge rule book. And uh, if you play by the rules, then the game works for both teams and it works for the spectators and it works for the survival of the, of the game itself, of the sport. Um, but, uh, you know, un, or rigging capitalism so that only the, 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 the morbidly rich and, and the giant corporations can really play in the game and they're the only ones who ever win um, is not a prescription for long term success or even viability, as Peter was pointing out. You know, the, the mother of all crashes, um, you know, it could be coming. And, and if it does, if it does, it, it will largely be the result of 42 years of neoliberal policy. Yeah. What do you foresee happening over, I mean, obviously everyone just focuses on the next election and what's going to happen, but people are really hurting right now. And we saw what happened eight years ago with Flint, Michigan. Now we're seeing it with Jackson, Mississippi. I mean, when we think about the type of changes that we need to see in our country, it's coming to the surface and you can't, there's not enough, there's not enough holes that you can plug at this point. They're just going to keep popping up everywhere. And I'm wondering is it going to do you think it's going to all happen at once that everything is going to crash? Or do you think that this is sort of like a slow burn where this will go and that will go and then eventually there'll be a consensus of sorts uh, amongst the populace? But I, I think if you're really paying attention to what's going on right now, especially with the impending railroad strike, I mean, you really have to be you have to be blind at this point not to see that the system's failing and yeah. it's failing badly. Yeah. And, and your second point is really what's been going on in a bigger way for the last decade or two. Um, and that is that, you know, the, the system's coming unraveled. We have seen since 1980, um, the American middle class go from 65 percent of us to 45 percent of us today. 
Um, and the 45% who are still in the middle class really can't do that with a single paycheck like they could in 1980. And in many cases, they're hanging on by their fingernails through debt, mostly credit card debt, student debt, mortgage debt. Um, we have seen a $50 trillion transfer of wealth since 1980 from the bottom 95% of Americans to the top of 1% of Americans. We have now the greatest concentration of wealth on the planet in the smallest number of hands. We have three men who own more wealth than the bottom half of America. Uh, I mean, you know, this is this is out of control. This is this is uh, basically what's happened uh, over the last uh, you know 40 years, but in particular, the last 20 years. And it's really gone on steroids in the last 10 years since Citizens United legalized political bribery is oligarchy is is rule by the rich. And this is why Congress hasn't successfully passed any kind of legislation in at least 20 years whose principal beneficiaries are the average working person versus giant corporations or billionaires. Because the giant corporations and billionaires now own the entire Republican Party and enough of the Democratic Party that they can block anything from happening. One of the things that that you covered really well about neoliberalism historically is that it hasn't worked. And there, the couple of good examples, like you said, Chile and Iraq, like there's examples where we can see that. Um, but I also thought it was interesting when you talked about how it either can breed this oligarchy and or this fascist authoritarianism. And like we're seeing in Russia kind of both. And here right now, we're basically we've got the oligarchy. The fascism is moving faster in that direction. But um, it's too it, it's amazing that both of those things come from this. Yeah, it's a, it's a really important point. And I, I covered that uh, aspect of it in this book in, in brief because I'd covered it at some detail in, in an earlier book, The Hidden History of American Oligarchy. Um, but oligarchy is a very unstable system. It typically only lasts one or two generations. Um, rule by the rich is, you know, eventually what happens is the people get pissed off and, and one of two things happens. Either a strongman autocrat emerges like Vladimir Putin did in Russia and like Noriel Morlipi did in Iraq and turns the nation into a fascist state, or the people rise up, overthrow the oligarchy, essentially, you know, whether it was the French Revolution, the American Revolution, or what's going on right now in both Russia and the United States, um, and flip the nation back into democracy. Oligarchies typically don't last a long period of time. So we're in a transitional phase right now. What? So can you estimate how much longer we're gonna be in this transitional phase? I'd be astonished if if there's not some clear resolution of this within the next five years. Yeah, yeah, that's what I think. Well, either, either we're going to win and we're going to end up a fascist state and and we'll have lost our democracy, or or the new dealers who are emerging and and particularly the Zoomers and the Millennials who are you know demanding rights for labor, for example, and and you know higher taxes yeah. on billionaires, um, will succeed and we'll go back to being a democracy. Well, don't worry, I'll be back in 24 and I'll totally destroy everything and then we can start oh, all over God. again. Why do you think so many people are so envious of the rich? I mean, I see it all the time. And I know that there's sort of this consensus amongst people who are conservative about the whole temporarily embarrassed millionaires. But they're really I mean, I think a lot of it's corporate media propaganda. They really have convinced people that these are the job creators. These are the benevolent people that make society possible. And a lot of people eat it up. It is interesting when I'm, you know, even when we're just out and about here in South Florida, it's when you hear people talk about politics, it's almost like you instinctively know, are they watching MSNBC? Are they watching Fox News? <laughs> you know, because it's, it's just like talking points. You, just, point. you, you just know, you just know. So what do you what do you think it is? Because that I, I really think there is sort of this 
there is not enough of people that are either not struggling or frankly, are even comfortable, but they recognize what the problem is and they're not willing to either do anything about it because this is really a class war more than anything else. But, but how do you see it as yeah. why there's so much envy for the rich? You know, um, if you go back, log into Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever, and, and, and go back and look at some of the TV shows from the 70s and the 80s and the early 80s, um, you know, from even the 60s. I mean, like I Dream of Genie kind of stuff or the, you know, the Dick Van Dyke show or, you know, some of the older shows. Um, right up through the 70s, what you find is that uh, people, even people who were like high up in corporations um, in, in the show, right? Uh, bewitched, you know, Darren, her husband is a, is the number two executive in a Madison Avenue ad agency. And they live in a normal middle class home, as right. does Larry Tate, the guy who owns the ad agency who lives down the street. And this is a right. friggin' Wall Street, uh, you know, ad, Madison Avenue ad agency. Those guys who own those ad agencies today have 35 bedroom mansions in the Hamptons, you know. Oh, yeah. That's, that's not what we're talking about. And the reason why, of course, is because the top income tax rate was 74% back then. But what, what's really interesting to, to actually address your question, Peter, is that if you start then watching as they get into the mid-80s, as the Reagan revolution was really taking hold, what you see is that suddenly the houses get bigger, the people get richer, is suddenly we're in dynasty land, um, we're seeing, you know, uh, giant mansions and giant, you know, and, and even the, quote, middle class people live in, you know, multi-million dollar Hollywood houses. And it's kind of been that way ever since. It's just, you know, and, and uh, you know, people are social animals and, and you know, we, we have this instinct to keep up with our neighbors. Um, in fact, it's hardwired into us. There was an amazing study that they did at MSU back in the 70s where they went around and put, they've got all kinds of trees around the campus. And so they went around and they added about 20% additional leaves to the nests of certain squirrels and not to all the squirrels, right? And what they discovered was that all the other squirrels added 20% more leaves to their nests. It's like, there's this instinct, oh my God, a winter must be coming and he knows it and I don't. So I've got to do what he did. This keeping up with the Jones thing is a very mammalian thing. And so when we see these wealthy people on TV and when we see this being lionized in our television programs and our movies, um, we start to think, hey, what's wrong with me? You know, I've got to get like that or, there, you know, et cetera. So it leads to that kind of thing that you're talking about. Yeah, I just want to say the thing that bothers me the most is the disproportionality from the highest paid to the lowest paid in a company. Like, I don't care how rich the rich get. I've said it a million times. Like, that doesn't bother me. My concern is how poor the poor are and that they don't have a minimum standard of living with dignity. Now, if that happened and then Jeff Bezos wants to fly giant, you know, penis rocket in outer space... Great. Have at it, man. But it's the disproportionality, like the bottom person should be moving up every time the top person is moving up in income. That's that's my thought on it. Like, I don't care how rich they are. And that's what we had from 1930 until or 1933, really, when Franklin Roosevelt took over until the 1980s. The, 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 the middle class was actually growing more rapidly than the really rich. But there were still a lot of really rich people and they were doing very, very well. Yeah. Thank you very much. Right. Well, I think we would be amiss. And obviously, we want to thank Carla Harrington very, very much for your very generous donation to the channel. How do we change this when our own party is embracing the pay to play system? As I'm sure you are well aware, this is uh, a problem. Our friend uh, Nina Turner was in D.C. Um, 
last week. And they had the DNC votes, uh, the biggest one of all, which, of course, was to ban dark money in Democratic primaries. Couldn't even get a vote. And so when something like that happens, couldn't even get a vote, <laughs> you, you know, obviously they, they wouldn't have a vote because they have to protect their corporate conglomerate, if you will. Uh, but do they not understand that when they start doing things like that, the more you try to resist the change from the populace that's inevitably coming, it just stirs the pot even more and gets people even more riled up. Are they like, from oh, I know perspective, it pisses me off. Yeah, I mean, are you from your perspective, are they not aware of this or are they really just that tone diff and they're like, yeah, well, dark money. It's all we're, good. we're corrupt. And that's that. I mean, to me, that was a really re- big red flag yeah. for a party that constantly wants to talk about Citizens United being the reason we can't sh- solve anything. Right. Well, here's your opportunity within your own party to really make that change. And no vote. they refuse to. do. If you were um, the coach of a football team in the NFL and the NFL changed the rules to say whichever team gives the, the league the largest donation gets to have an extra three players on the field. Um, and would you, and, and you're, uh, you know, you were able to be the team that gave the largest donation. Would you then say, no, I'm not going to have the extra three players on the field because we're noble. Um, you know, it's a real challenge. I'm not defending the DNC in this. I think it's, it's terrible what happened, but the fact of the matter is the Supreme court changed the rules of the game. And right now there's billions, there's literally there's going to be billions of dollars spent in the next few months going into this election. And, uh, you know, you can't run elections exclusively on small dollar donations off the Internet. Again, I, I sound like I'm rationalizing the DNC. I'm absolutely not. I'm arguing that we need to change the rules. We need to get Citizens United out of the way. But if you if you give up your political power, if, if uh, you know, if, if the Democratic Party just stopped running ads in a half a dozen major campaigns where they actually are using corporate money to do so, and those candidates lose to Republicans, we won't even have a democracy anymore. So, I, you know, I don't see any easy transitional answer to this. I mean, it's, it's, it, there's a huge push and pull here. I did a fundraiser for the, uh, for the Congressional Progressive Caucus about 10, maybe 12 years ago down in New Mexico when Raul Grijalva was running it. At that time, I think it had 18 members. You know, Bernie started this thing 20 years ago. And and now it's the second largest caucus in Congress. The, you know, there is a movement within the Democratic Party that is having considerable success. And most of the members of the Progressive Caucus don't take corporate money. So within the Democratic Party, a lot of changes happened over the last decade in particular. And, and I think, frankly, more is happening very, very rapidly. But, you know, I get it. I'm, I'm not happy about it, but I get it that they're not willing to pull the rug out from underneath themselves before they have an opportunity to gain enough power to get around some of these fools like Manchin and Cinema and actually change the rules of the game. You know, H.R. 1, the For the People Act, actually would have changed the relationship of money and politics. This was the Democratic Party. I mean, it passed the, the entire House of Representatives and only two senators stopped it in the Senate. So, you know, I'm going I'm, I'm to push back slightly, and I do agree with Carla. I think that it's important to recognize that this is the primary issue. And when the party does have good representation, um, you know, one of the things I always like to point out about Representative Omar. Yeah, this is for primaries. We're yeah, talking about. Yeah, yeah, one of the things that I always point out about Representative Omar is that she's a very effective legislator, and so is Ayanna Presley. You know, it's one thing to have 
you know, the so-called squad and the progressives on the Hill. But what are you actually doing? Like, are you getting good amendments in these bills? We know there's no standalone bills in D.C. You're never going to see them as long as the system is the way it is right now. But if there are ways to get these amendments in there, the benefits for the communities that you need, you know, that is real tangible change that is necessary. I have no doubt that Summerlee is probably going to do something very good as well, representing Pittsburgh. But as Jen likes to point out, there is a huge problem with organizations like APAC, for example. And if the dark money is allowed to flow, and I mean oh, it's millions of dollars, you, you know, again, you happen to be in a state where they tried it and they failed because Jamie McLeod, I actually think, is also going to be a very good congressional representative. And she has really flown under the radar, maybe to her advantage, because it, it also is something to be said for not just kind of putting yourself out there. Uh, a lot of people don't necessarily want everyone to just be, you know, in the spotlight, you know, AOC style, if you will. But I really think that this core issue here with the ability to kneecap the progressive movement by basically saying, Okay, if we have to spend five million dollars to stop a candidate who's got a million dollars to run, if we have to spend 10 million dollars, if necessary, you saw what they did to Andy Levin in Michigan. This type of thing is going to repeat itself. And I think that's where. Yeah, that's where I think this the Nina Turner. I think that's where the core of this issue really lies. And that's where I think we really have to be more vocal about what's going on within the party infrastructure. That's something I think we could clean up if we really worked at. Yeah, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you. And, 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 you know, like I said, I mean, the first piece of legislation that passed the House of Representatives was something that got money out of politics to a large extent. I mean, it, did, it didn't completely reverse Citizens United, but it took us probably 30 percent down the road, which was a hell of a long way, given the situation we have right now. And, you know, it got blocked by two neoliberals, two neoliberal Democrats in the Senate and every single Republican. So right. it's, uh, it, you know, I, I understand. I understand what's going on. I'm, I'm not a fan yeah. of that, you know. It's hard for people like, like we can't get a chance to even fight Republicans because we can't get to our own party. Like we can't even get into the discussion. Um, and that's a problem. And as much as they're sitting there now trying to seat um, radical MAGA people as some Pied Piper strategy, which they didn't learn failed them the first time. And you actually see them donating to these candidates again. Pritzker donated an ungodly amount to his own opponent in Illinois. But, but <laughs> yet, so bad. right. And it, and it's like, but yet they won't allow progressives anything. They won't allow progressives any foothold. And the reality is progressive candidates are the ones who can better beat those Republicans. Oh, I agree. It goes the other way. Better candidates. You know, the party's been you know very supportive of a lot of progressive candidates and Jamie McLeod Skinner here in Oregon, for example, who you mentioned a minute ago, um, you know, had the support of the party. In fact, uh, we had a sitting Democratic member of Congress, Kurt Schrader, who is hardcore neoliberal, voted against, you know, uh, allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices, quack, 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 quack. Mm -hmm. And four county Democratic parties surrounding that district and in that district and surrounding that district all endorsed Jamie over a sitting Democratic member of Congress. So, I mean, you know, I want to see more of that kind of thing. I think that's absolutely great. And And the issue was that that he was taking money from corporations and she wasn't. You know, it's great that here in Oregon we can pull that off. And I get it that, you know, there's not as much money sloshing around in Oregon, although we got a big problem with our governor's race right now. we got two billionaires in this state 
who have funded a former Democrat who's a hardcore neoliberal and, and kind of a right winger who's running as an independent. And she's probably going to pull enough votes away from the from a good Democrat, Tina Kotek, the former Speaker of the House, um, that we're going to end up with a whack job Trumpy Republican as governor. Uh, you know, what? but Oregon is always forefront, like in my mind, like I always think of Oregon as like I want that to be like what spreads like for me, ideal retirement is a place with that recreational cannabis and death with dignity. Yeah. Both of those things simultaneously make. Well, for you <laughs> yeah, you do. Yeah. And Oregon is uh, Oregon was I've was never even rated, been. I need to go. Yeah, it's I rated know, like the, the, the most beautiful state in the country just based it's on very everything green. that it has. Yeah, it is. It is. The Pacific Northwest is one thing. And then the eastern part of the state's a whole other uh, animal. Yeah. And it's like, you know, we really uh, so nice. being able to have that is important. But again, you kind of look at it from the perspective of, and I think this is a very good transition to what I think is one of the hallmarks of this current moment we're in right now regarding neoliberalism and sort of the, it's not in its death throes yet, but the fact that we can't get a vote on whether or not our congressional representatives can do insider trading. And there is talk about whether or not that's going to get a vote, I believe at the end of this month, I mean, the idea that that's even a thing, and it's so wide open, right? Every, most people that are at least somewhat aware of what's going on in politics, they are aware that our congressional representatives don't play by the same rules as regular people. And I think that's something that's really starting to get to just about everybody. How do you see it? I, I agree. <laughs> I have nothing to add to that. I, you know, I'm, I'm expecting that there will be a vote on it because there is a lot of political pressure, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, grassroots pressure coming to bear on this. Um, One of the mistakes that I think the Democrats are making right now, I think, it, it, just putting the thinking gap on going into the midterms, I know that Roe v. Wade is a huge issue and it should definitely be part of what's being talked about. But it seems like, seems like that's all that's being talked about. If you are going to run on this wedge issue, and it's an important one, and I believe, and as I'm sure you would as well, Jen, um, this really is an issue where when it becomes a ballot initiative, it's going to win in every single state. You saw what happened in Kansas. Yeah, even, yeah, red states. Yeah, but it's not even a question. Most people support it. That's the big difference between Kansas and Indiana. In Indiana, they just let the GOP legislature do it. You saw <laughs> what they tried to do in Michigan. Thankfully, the Michigan Supreme Court is got enough votes where they're like, okay, well, you can't do it here. So it's going to get yeah. on the ballot. And in Michigan, in Michigan, it's probably going to pass like 80%. It'll be an unbelievably high number to the point in which you're just going to look like you're going to, that, that may be the biggest reason why. Are the you GOP, you a question with this? Yes. I okay. <laughs> are the Democrats making a mistake by just focusing on Roe v. Wade and not adding an economic populist element to what they're fighting for? My understanding is that the the main there that there are four issues that the Democrats are going to put front and center in this or are putting front and center going into this election. It, these are very regionally, but um, and basically it's abortion, guns, the environment slash climate change, and the threats to democracy slash big money in politics. And you hear Democratic candidates talking about those four issues pretty much the exclusion of everything else. And I think that's pretty wise. I think those are big deal issues. Uh, there's even an acronym that they're floating around. Uh, you know, some of the Democratic consultants are talking about AGED, A-G-E-D, you know, abortion, guns, environment, democracy. And uh, we'll see. But uh, yeah, I, yeah, 
I'd love to hear my congresswoman talk about the importance of getting money out of politics. Yeah, that's not going to happen. That would be so rich, would that not? Well, at least feign ignorance on it. At least oh, that she's she's not putting that that last that D on there. That D she's going to go with the first three and just cut that D right off. Yeah, but the good that didn't sound too good. Uh, But (laughs) you know the good the the good news is is that things are actually changing for the better. I must say here in South Florida, we have. you know, put some, I guess what you would call chess pieces on the board. Sheila Sherfalis McCormick is a really good congressional representative. And uh, needless to say, Debbie uh, tried her mighty best to try to derail her from being in office, but didn't work. Um, And that's good. You know, we, we, we have to know that anything that we're fighting for is going to be the fight for our lives. It's much harder. It's a lot easier to run down the mountain as it was. You know, Reagan took over at a time when the economy was not doing well. And he basically took Milton Friedman's ridiculous supply side economics theory and put it into practice. And probably for a few years, it was working out really well. And then they got drunk on power and just decided, oh, it's always going to be like this. Like the idea that if you're in a bull market, you raise taxes and in a bear market, you lower taxes. Well, no, the idea now is that if you're in any market, you lower taxes. And it just doesn't work that way. And I can only imagine what it's going to look like when it finally fails. And how do you how do you see it, you know, coming sort of like to a crashing end, if you will? Like, what do you see as being? Yeah, like what's the, the big, next trajectory? I, I, honestly, Tom, and I think it's a great transition to talk about this railroad strike that's coming up, and you know what you finish can, one question. That what do you see it being? You do you go. think it's going to be the railroad strike? Like, where do you see it ultimately coming? I don't know. The, the I, I have a nephew who's. Uh, who works on the railroads. And I've been hearing a lot about the railroad strike, you know, through my own family. Um, uh, plus I had the president of the union on the show a couple of weeks ago. Um, it could do some damage to the economy and it could even do some damage to the democratic party over the short term, uh, the strike. But on the other hand, these people have been badly screwed and badly screwed by neoliberalism, frankly, you know, the consolidation of the, of the railroads and the deregulation of the railroads. Um, you know, we'll, we'll have to we'll have to see how it plays out. I, I don't you know, I, I am of the opinion that America is in the process of rejecting neoliberalism and the main and that's a good thing. And the main thing that tells me that is not just what's going on right now, but what happened five years ago, six years ago in 2016, when Donald Trump got lots and lots of Americans to vote for him by by by. Uh, campaigning against neoliberalism. Remember, he said he was going to raise taxes on rich people so high that his friends wouldn't talk to him and he was going to get a nosebleed. He was going to bring back all our jobs from overseas. He was going to raise the minimum wage. He was going to re-empower labor. I mean, he made all these promises. He was lying through his friggin' teeth. But those were the things that got average Americans to vote for him. And that's why he won the first time and he lost so badly the second time was because everybody realized he was just a BS artist. But that tells me that 2016 was probably the turning point because Hillary Clinton was still preaching neoliberalism. She was still defending her husband's record. And and people were like, no, we don't want that anymore. And so I, I think it's, you know, we're way past due. You know, the you know, we're, we're past, you know, uh, whatever metaphor you want to use, you know, conception and pregnancy. And, you know, we, you know, we should have had this baby, a, you know, four years ago. Um, uh, but uh, I think it's coming. What, what amazes me are the amount of people that I meet um, that, you know, and I guess it's just a matter of these are not people that are suffering yet. So it hasn't necessarily like affected them yet. And when I talk with them about, 
you know, there is this uprising that is happening. Like this is going to happen. This is historically how it goes. And you can either have populism on the left or you're going to get it on the right. Yeah. And and you're not going to like that. And I remember telling people in 2015, your next president's going to be Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump. And people, they, my friends all thought I was nuts. They're like, you're crazy. It, it, Hillary's so much more sensible. I'm like, okay, well, you, you go with that. And then you're going to like, they didn't understand. And to me, it's very clear. You're getting it one way or the other. Yeah. And we'd be so much better off going with it on the left. And it's just very hard to explain this to people. They don't understand how that works. Well, what what it is is the end of you know it's the end of this era. It's the end of forty years of neoliberalism, of Reaganism, of trickle down economics. People have figured out it's a scam and a con job. They're over it, and they want somebody who will tell them the truth about that. And you know, uh, thankfully, Joe Biden is starting to talk like that, and and actually trying to act like that. I mean, you know, the three and a half trillion dollar Build Back Better again it got blocked by a couple of neoliberals in the Democratic Party and the entire GOP. Um, uh, you know, there have been a lot of good effort. And these came out of Bernie Sanders, by the way. He's the he's the chairman of the budget committee. All of these programs go through his hand. And so we're in a good position. We just need some more genuine progressives in the Senate and in the House. And frankly, I think that uh, in particular, these these issues of abortion, guns and the environment are going to help put them in in the House and Senate this fall. I'm pretty optimistic about it, although, you know, not good. Right. Well, it brings out voters, you know, like the the abortion issue brings out voters because people perceive that it's going to, you know, it affects them when in fact, like in poor communities, rural communities, states like Texas, um, most people didn't have access to reproductive health care for years already. Like this has been like a, this has been happening in so many different ways for so many people for a really long time. Um, but I think it hits the more moderate people, the less affected people, because now they're like, oh, really? That's going to affect my rights. Um, and so I do. I think it motivates people to go out and vote. Yeah, it's it's finally the Republican policies have have hit close to home. Yeah, I think the two states that have the most are most likely to flip are ironically Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. I think that without question, John Fetterman is the best candidate who's running in, for the U.S. Senate right now. Yeah. And he, if elected, and I believe he's going to win, um, he really can change the dynamic of the Democratic Party in terms of, you know, what the average candidate can look like in the future. He's oh, a yeah. real standard Sherrod Brown Democrat. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Genuinely. I'd love to see him like, see, I would wonder how a confrontation between someone like John Fetterman and Joe Manchin would go. I bet on Fetterman. Well, <laughs> that, it would be glorious, though, to watch. Yeah, but I want, think that want, would be a really good because Fetterman isn't going to like he's not going to dance around somebody yeah. like Joe Manchin. I, I don't like the theatrical aspect of politics, but I would watch Fetterman versus Manchin. That I would watch. <laughs> And I think Mandela Barnes has an excellent chance of not just because he's a good candidate. You know, you also have to when we're talking about the worst representatives in the GOP, Ron Johnson's right up there. Like he's right at the top. And, you know, he he probably makes Scott Walker blush. You know, that really and and that takes something. But, yeah, I would definitely say that if there are two that could flip realistically, I would say that those are the two. Do you see any others? It's going to be interesting to see how Arizona shakes out. Um, yeah. It, 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 it's going to be interesting, frankly, I think, to see how Florida shakes out. I mean, do you think Charlie Crist has a chance of knocking down? No. 
that's, that's bummer. Just we just we need to like accept what, the things that we cannot change and work on the things that we can. Oh, Charlie, I know I know him personally. I mean, you know, but it has nothing to, be, to do with liking. You Charlie. have to be realistic about who the leader of the GOP is and. It is Ron DeSantis. It's not. He he's he's not really even running for governor. He's he, oh, he's he won that. That's yeah, right. yeah. And I always find it. And, and Tom, that's I, our next I, president. I would, I would love to. Right now, where we're heading, right now, it is it's Ron DeSantis, and that's the scary thought because that is the trajectory of where it's going. I don't say it because I like it. Do yeah, you, no, he is a fascist. Yeah, yeah, I mean, from oh, your pers- authoritarian. Yeah, as he, he's he is at a minimum. He is he is a raging authoritarian. Yeah. And I guess my question is, you know, there's a lot of people who still think that Trump has a stranglehold on the party, regardless of all of these legal problems he has right now, and that no one is really going to challenge him. Ron DeSantis has raised well over a hundred million dollars already. He's not raising that to hold on to it for five, six years. He's raising it because he does intend to run. Tell me I'm wrong. No, you're right. absolutely right. right. He's in- he's he's, he's- I mean, I'm on this email list, which I didn't ask to do. <laughs> and and uh, I'm getting emails literally every day from him begging for money. This is exactly why economic populism from the left is so vitally important. Because if you're going to hold off somebody like a DeSantis, who's a smart Trump. You need a populist. We yeah. need a populist on the left. Well, we need a left. We need a labor party. We need a left. There's no left. Like we we don't really have a left. We have Democrats and Republicans, but there's no left. All right. I'm going to put you on the hot seat. So uh, all I mean, I don't agree with it, but all signs point to Joe running again. And if that is the case, do you think he'll be primaried from the left? And do you think he should be primaried from the left? I am doubtful that Joe Biden is going to run again. I mean, he's got to talk like that because the minute he doesn't, he becomes a lame duck president and he loses about half of his political power. Right. And he cannot afford to do that until the third year of his presidency. So um, I'm just not taking seriously all this rhetoric about, you know, 80 year old Joe is going to run for president. Please no. I'm not buying it. And I know that there are a number of Democrats who are lining up right now. Uh, Gavin Newsom probably at the front of that line. Um, but, you know, there's others on down the list who are seriously talking about a Democratic primary. But again, this is a conversation that nobody inside the party is going to have with anybody outside the party right. after this election at the very least and probably until, mm-hmm. you know, uh, next fall, a year from now. Yeah, because it would just be a bad position to be in. But I could definitely see uh, Florida versus California kind of almost Super Bowl-esque presidential governor showdown. Let me tell you something. If you want must-see TV, DeSantis versus Newsom, that's... It would be, it would be, like, that would be definitely good ratings. Yeah, and we all know that. has that uh, kind of Justin Trudeau, JFK charm factor going for him. And uh, DeSantis has the snarl. Uh, you know, we're going to beat the crap out of you, uh, uh, kind of proud boy factor that the Republicans seem to love. So like, like you said, they're, they're both essentially populists. Well, not necessarily in a good way. That's ultimately the problem. And, you know, one of the things that, again, when we think about neoliberalism and what it's done to this country over the past, you know, generation and a half, quite frankly, at this point, that's kind of where we're at. Um, when you look at the Supreme Court, and you look at how it's been completely co-opted by neoliberalism. It's a completely, and not just that it's insanely conservative, but it's insanely corporate. And if you look, everyone focuses on Roe v. Wade. 
But the type of legislation that they are enacting is so counterintuitive to everything that this country wants. Yeah. That is so freaking scary. You mean, wait, you mean judgments, you mean cases, decisions, not yes. legislation. Yeah. But, you know, it's the, the old definition of fascism um, from the 1987 American Heritage Dictionary is a, uh, a, 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 a the merger of corporate and state interests combined with belligerent nationalism. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that's the definition of of, uh, you know, what the Republican Party has brought us. And and uh, and frankly, what hopefully the Democratic Party is starting to walk back from, although I get it. It's still problematic. It's frustrating. And what, what I find the most frustrating thing is that none of it is really representing the majority of people. And this is what I always say is we have a very dysfunctioning, broken republic because if it was functioning, then the policy of our land would reflect the majority of the populace, right? Like that, it would be a majority rule. Most people agree with majority rule democracy. And yet we see that we have policy that is 100% not in line with the majority of what people want, regardless of party. And that is what's incredibly frustrating to me is that what's happening is not reflecting what people want. That's broken. And, and we're just, it's being bought by the oligarchs to the point where the parties are getting less and less relevant other than on issues like LGBTQ rights and abortion. And I'm not saying those aren't important, but it's like we need to, like we need something significant to happen. And I just don't right now. The Democrats are just not populist enough. They're just not po- like I want them to be. It's not like like I'm not out here preaching third party. I'm not like I want them to understand that if they don't go to the left, they will lose. And, and I and I got to tell Candidly. you, Tom, we're very friendly with Andrew Yang. And it's like. If he only kind of knew how to direct this thing, he yeah. could probably do pretty well with it. But man, it's like, how is it? It's it's kind of interesting. Like, do you ever observe how, like, a rudderless ship politics is for so many people? How they really just don't. There's no know. strategy. It's such a lack of strategy, yeah. man. Yeah, yeah. I I'm I'm real skeptical about Andrew Yang. I I think he's being driven, he's driven more by ego than ideology or anything else. I could see that. I could see that. But I mean, we're, and we were just talking about in terms of the prospect of a third party in general. It's just, for me, I really want to work with what we have. And yeah. I really think that that's the menu right now for better or worse. Like that's the menu. And I, I feel like they don't recognize them. When I'm talking about our party establishment locally, it's kind of a microcosm for nationally. It's like the people in charge they know that people don't like what they're doing and don't like the corporate. They know that they just don't care. But then the people under them, the real party loyals, the people that really want like that are out there going to be pounding the pavement for Charlie Chris, like those people, they're not understanding that if we don't get someone more populist, that this is never going to work. They keep repeating the same thing over and over again. Like they didn't learn the Hillary lesson. And I, I it's just bizarre. If I, I, I'll, I'll just share with you, Tom. If I was running against DeSantis and I was going to plot my strategy in terms of how I would be competitive against him, rule number one, don't make it about how Ron DeSantis is terrible and you should vote for me. That's not how you would do and it. And that's all they do. What I would do is I would talk very briefly about some of the good things that he's done environmentally, he's actually been really good. For a Republican, yeah. he's been great. Yeah. So 
I, I would talk about a couple of those things and then I would just lean in completely on where he's failed. And the biggest thing he's failed on is housing. Like yeah. the failure on housing in Florida, I mean, it is a crisis here. Uh, it's it's like California. There's really no difference between the two states. They have Which the is exact, why it would be a good color war. It, it would, but it, we don't need that. The we red versus the blue. Again, for people that are comfortable and just care about that, that's good. But for people, for the overwhelming majority of people that are now struggling in some capacity, it's not good. And we need real concrete solutions. And I just don't see the idea. Think about this, Tom. The fact that there are still Democrats running on access to, to health care, access it, to it, affordable health care. That's on. like my least favorite phrase. If somebody says that to me. Well, and that's what Val Demings says that. Val Demings says access to affordable health care. That's not going to be that, that's not going to beat Marco Rubio. Like that's not going to, that's not going to be. People are catching it. on. That's and the I'll problem. Tell you, and How I'll, do we save them from themselves? Yeah, and that's the problem. And, and I'll tell you something else, Tom. If you saw the commercials that, you know, that Congresswoman Demings was running down here, you would think she was running on the Republican team. Yeah. That's what she She's running right. To the right of Rubio, especially on law and order. Uh-huh. I mean, like, wow. In the most law and order state, law, we are a more law and order state than Texas is. Like, I know people don't believe that, but we are. And the fact that you She's feel the, right the need to go right of the, it's it's like, come on, man. That's so not- Not a on, recipe man. for success, do you no, think? No, we really, like I said, and that's where it's harder. And and I, I think a good place to wind down the conversation is to address the fact that, in especially in the Democratic Party, there's too much of this top-down approach where there isn't enough of the bottom-up approach, which the GOP embraces. Like I think you've that's how they the end show. up with crazy. Yeah, but you value the precinct committee leader. That's you true. value the city commissioners. That doesn't really happen on the Democratic side. There's too much of this. Oh, we have to super focus. delegates. Yeah, we have. We're not even that, but you have to focus on who the head of the ticket is. And well, I'm thinking, all right, well, if Charlie Crist and Val Demings are not going to win, then we really need to focus on the local races where maybe if we get good voter turnout, we can flip some of those really important school board seats. Like that is a mindset in the Democratic Party that we definitely don't see enough of that I think is one of its fatal flaws right now. How do you see it? I don't disagree. <laughs> you, know. you have that. Does, is that is that something you see in Oregon as well? I think it varies regionally. Um, the Oregon Democratic Party is is uh, far less decentralized. The county parties have a whole lot more power, uh, at least as far as I can tell. Uh, you know, like I say, I gave the example, you know, four county parties, you know, basically trash talking a sitting Democratic member of Congress. Um, that's a chance that, you know, I doubt the Democratic Party in Florida would take. Oh, you know? <laughs> we don't really have it. We don't really have a. There's, there's regionality here to to what's going on inside the Democratic Party and inside the Republican Party, too, for that matter. Although I would definitely say which is more populous yeah. in general, like the whole constant. That's the whole point. Like if you live in a conservative place, then your representative should represent you conservatively. I mean, I don't I, I never care about that. Like, I just care about if you're taking money from corporations or you're serving your constituents, because if you come from a very rural conservative place, then you don't necessarily need a left wing, you know, progressive representing you. And I get that. That's, you know, that's how it works. And then we go with majority rule. Yeah. And I do think that if you're looking at one, if if you're asking me what the state that I would pick where maybe if everything broke right, it could possibly happen, it would be Beto against uh, Greg Greg Abbott in Texas. I'm not seeing it. I don't see it either. But, you know, if everything lined up, 
that would be a case where if you really had, because they got some good, you know, uh, Greg uh, Kazar, um, our friend, uh, blanking on her name, she's a new congressional representative. Jasmine Crockett. Jasmine Crockett in Dallas. You know, when you start putting those kind of non-corporate chess pieces on the board, that has a that that yeah. has a massive impact we're working when it comes it. to getting out the vote. Now, granted, we're talking Austin and Dallas, so it's not you know it's not rural Texas, if you will, and that state's very rural. But at the same time, uh, maybe uh, I let's put it this way: if you're asking me to bet between Beto O'Rourke and Charlie Crist, I'll put my money on Beto because I think Beto's got a. I mean, listen, credit. Thank, to him. Thank, I'm sure he's thankful for the Uvalde. Yeah. Well, no. That, I mean, oh, you know, they made so much fundraising off of that. But the truth is he had threatened to take their guns. And when he did that a few years back, we said, that's it. Like he just totally kneecapped himself in Texas. And then that mass shooting happened very close to home for them. And I think just the same way as Roe v. Wade is helping is going to help nationally the Democrats. I think that is going to help Beto overcome his I'm coming for your guns. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think that if the ad that um, that I think Don Winslow had put together on Beto's behalf, it's actually very good. It's long. It's about three okay. minutes long. It's on it's on the uh, Twitter uh, page. I don't know that about he has, but it, it was, but again, I, I think that the way that that was done was um, was effective, and it wasn't just about guns. It wasn't just about Roe. He really hammered home that we have an economic crisis, and we have to deal with this. Good. And I thought that that, to me, really spoke to you know where we're at, and that I think the, that is the essence of the hidden history of neoliberalism is. I think a lot of times people are looking in a lot of different directions. Like, is it this? Is this what caused it? Is that what caused it? It's the greatest upward transfer of wealth our country's ever seen. And people are desperate. And when people are desperate, you never know what's going to happen. And, you know, we're just in, we're, I mean, I know I am, and I'm sure you are as well, extremely grateful for the work that you do and how hard you have to work. And you've been at it for, you know, a lot longer than I have. And you've seen a lot of changes in this country. Um, we don't know where we're heading, but I think as long as we continue to work on this coalition as we're doing, uh, you never know what might happen, but it is it's it's grounded in labor and it's grounded in economic populism. And I think if we get back to the teachings of FDR, you know, that'll be how we win the day. And it's not going to be easy, but I'm an eternal optimist when it comes to economic populism. So I think that that's going to be the only way it happens. And I, I would like to think that you see it uh, probably the same. Yeah, by and large, I do. Yeah, step by step. Is there another book coming? In the not too distant uh, uh, The next one, um, I'm. I just finished the first draft uh, last weekend. It's. Uh, it'll be out in March of next year. It's going to be called the Hidden History of American Democracy. So I'm, I've been spending a lot of time living inside the heads of uh, Native Americans and Ben Franklin, and, <laughs> you know, some of the some of the uh, founders of this republic, and and a lot of the uh, European Enlightenment thinkers. It's it's been a fascinating journey. One thing I wanted to say that I really appreciate when you write is when you reference um, different times that you've been in different countries and the experiences and relate them back. Like, I think it's really and plus it's really nice because, you know, kudos to you that you get to travel so much and go to so many cool places. But just to really have firsthand reference of things that, you know, have worked and haven't worked in, in other places. And it's like, aren't you sick of watching us like kind of bang our heads against the wall with it? Yeah, really, you know, most Americans have never traveled outside the United States. Yeah. And they 
realize that, you know, we're we're at the bottom of the list of life expectancy among democracies in the world because we're the only one that doesn't have a national health care system. You know, we're at the top of uh, student debt in the world because we're the only one that doesn't have free college education, basically, or low cost. You know, uh, it's it's crazy. I, I think, you know, if you could take most Americans and have them spend a month in Europe um, or even Costa Rica. Uh, you know, there'd be a hell of a lot of change in this country really fast. I agree. that, And we're very ignorant here. Just, you know, we're very self, self-centered self mm-hmm. in our own little universe. And I do love Costa Rica. It's awesome there. I would, if I didn't have children, that's where I'd be living right now. Yeah. yeah um, there's no military and there's no military. That's right. that's right. I think one of the reasons why um, Bernie was so successful in, you know, Vermont has a history of being a very conservative state. But he really, I mean, it's the only state that never voted for FDR. It's the only one. I I don't even think Maine did either, but that's it. And amazingly, one of the things that he did, which was a true gift, was because he was in Burlington, he just bussed people all the time into Canada and said, well, you want to get your prescription drugs at ten percent of the cost that would be in the states? Is we going to do? I was living in at the time, and those every Saturday morning, the buses would line up right there in downtown, right just three blocks from my house. I could see it through my front window, and there would be Bernie, you know, <laughs> with a bunch of little old ladies getting on the bus <laughs> to go to Montpelier or to go to um, Montreal. Yeah. Two and a half hour drive away. If you yep. could turn a state like Vermont blue. That's but it's not that Vermont is blue. They're very libertarian people up there. I just came from a trip just going through New England from New Hampshire and Maine. And it's very live and let live up there. And yeah, there's pockets like Portland, Maine is particularly like, you know, my kind of hippie progressive place. It's cute and all. But it's just very live and let live. Like in New Hampshire, they don't have legalized cannabis, but they're not prosecuting you either. Like they're they're just very everybody minds their business there. I think you live need, free or die. I think you need to make a trip to Portland, Oregon. That's what I think. Oh, I'd love to go to I'd love to go there. And you know, you go see back. Lake Oswego, go to uh, maybe Corvallis. Is that Sunday. where you are? You're in Portland, Tom? Yeah. yeah. That's so nice. How long have you been there? Uh, since 2005 with a seven year interruption when we lived in DC. That's really nice. Certainly an interruption, but one that uh, you certainly learn a lot from. You are in a great place and uh, you are a great man. Um, Thank very you so grateful, much, Tom, for coming on always. and talking about this. Guys, if you are not currently watching, listening, subscribing, and all that wonderful stuff to the Tom Hartman program, make sure that you get over to Tom's sure. website and do that because you will learn a lot. Yeah. And trust me, even though it's somewhat wonky, it's better than listening. It's to very C- educational. Better than listening to C-SPAN. Oh, yeah. So I think you definitely would learn uh, a heck of a lot. And, <laughs> better than C-SPAN. Well, it is. <laughs> if you really want to learn about what's going on, I mean, I always say, you know, you, you were the first person who really got me to see Bernie in a very bright light in the spring of 2015. It was transformational. And Tom. you were what, Tom, you were one of the only ones. <laughs> And I can remember you having <laughs> guests on the show. You had Sam Saxon, you had Alex Lawson, but you know most of the people you had on there were like, what are you crazy supporting that hippie socialist from Vermont? <laughs> and you just were like, you could say whatever you want, but I'm going to tell you exactly why Bernie's the man and you did an amazing job and we'll always be grateful that you did. Thank you. Thanks for coming on, Tom. Thank you for inviting me. It's great Absolutely. to see you, Tom. Always welcome. Have a great One of the best. One of the best. And also with like the best library. 
Oh yeah, his library. I'll never. Insane. The only library. I'll, I, you just took the word out of my mouth. It's like the only library that I could say competes with Tom Hartman's is Oliver Stone. Beware all guests. We judge you based on the breadth of your library. Double K. I don't. When, <laughs> is the reason your name Double K is because you make double donations to our show? Whatever the reason is, I don't know thank who you, you are or where you, you are, but thank you. Very appreciative. Thank you very much. And. As We're a matter small. of fact, before We're we bring on our guests, before we bring on our guests, because I did say that this was the time that I was going to do this, because okay. Lord knows you've got we, to. Just so you guys know, we yes. do we do um, have Patreon, and for as little as five dollars a month, you can support our show. We get guests like Tom Hartman and <clears throat> very other, you know, all different kinds of authors, all different kinds of topics. We cover a lot of labor issues, mm-hmm. but for less. Yes, for $5 a month. But we have now added a $50 a month small business sponsorship category. And yeah, it's it's mostly, I mean, I guess it doesn't have to be for only our small, our local businesses, but that's who we're meeting. So generally. No, but we do want to give a shout out to our first official small business patron of our channel, Apex Insurance Agency which is based in Delray Beach. I was a resident for seven years and I was well aware. Uh, Home and auto insurance specialty. Uh, When we think about the type of, what what am I doing? Put a banner. Oh, okay. Uh, Well. No, you should. I I will. You could do a scrolly. A scrolly? I'll do a scrolly. Okay. I'll do a scrolly. (laughs) Uh, But I want to thank Paul Jacques. Got a lot of networking events here in South Florida. Networking beast, uh, really, really good, and it really pays <coughs> to support. And again, this is a small business, so support small, shop small, buy local, or is it buy local, shop small? I think that's what it is. I think that that's how you uh, would define it. Uh, but yeah, you know they have very competitive rates, and when it comes to certain things like protecting your home if you have one because lord knows it's not well it's home life and auto right okay there's the there's the promo all right but you can't actually because we had to make sure this had nothing to do with some sort of medicare advantage or healthcare type of no we made it very very listen it's no different than like for-profit education education healthcare and corrections right if you think you're going to promote that on our show for a for-profit purpose (laughs) Never gonna it's happen. not going to happen. But I'm okay with home, life, and auto. So that's that's something that need, we need to have. So And for as go. little as $5 a month, you can become a patron of our channel. As you know, we are transforming politics into service. That is what we do. This is not about us becoming rich fat cats. It's about helping the lesser the. We also have an event coming up on on Saturday at 1 p.m. that we are going to put the banner up for right now. Very important that you all know that we are trying to help a local candidate, Nick Sortle, who is currently on the city council in the town that we both live in, which is Plantation. He is running for mayor and all politics is local. If you want to talk about the issues that are really important, and this is one of those towns where it really matters, especially especially if there is the prospect that Jen might run for office again. You need to have more like-minded people in elected positions of power. We're playing chess, people. That are not going to be working against you. We're playing chess. So if you have an appetite for really good Italian food, and 
Oh, it's pizza, people. It's Come really, for pizza. We're having a pizza party on Saturday from one to three. It's really good pizza here in South Florida. Check around that. And we really need some people to come out and support Nick because because it's a small race, because it's nonpartisan, and because the territory is manageable. It's one of those races that we actually have a chance of winning. We need people out helping canvas, and that's mm. sort of what this is about. We're going to try to get people to sign up to do some canvassing. I'm going to go out and canvas. So will I. And we're going to be going door to door. The incumbent will not have that resource. She just won't. She'll be having a lot of mailers. Um, She's already started with mailers, which should tell you something. Uh, We will just be very, very direct. We need a ground game. We'll be very direct. One of the biggest reasons why we are also supporting Nick is because he is running against one of Debbie Wasserman Schultz's most proud cheerleaders. She is. This is somebody who, and this is one of my biggest grievances is that I wasn't even living in plantation at the time, but when we were, when we were running our campaign, we had a couple of our volunteers would went to city commission meeting. We always tried to have people present at different commission meetings and our volunteers were there in our t-shirt, in our campaign t-shirts. And the mayor told them that they weren't allowed to be there wearing those t-shirts. Okay. So, which is ridiculous authoritarian that's and not also a not a thing. That's a, that's not a stoner. That's a Debbie Downer. Yeah. Her name is Mayor Stoner, which I find to be, she's a travesty to the name Stoner. She if, does such a disservice to the name Stoner. It's embarrassing. So if you don't want to become a patron and some people just simply don't want to put anything on their credit card that is more than a single transaction at a given time, you could go to Cash App, dollar sign, Gen Change, contribute whatever you like. Remember, the things that we do here locally support non-corporate candidates, non-partisan races predominantly. We also are transforming politics into service by supporting local nonprofits like Mobile School Pantry. We, have we an do. Event coming up. We have an event coming up. Um, but we do things like homeless care packs. Um, and we donate to organizations like Mobile School Pantry. So all the money that comes into us goes to non-corporate candidates and local service. Uh, so organizations that we know and that we work with. So it's sort of like a mutual fund, if you will, for progress. Speaking of progress. an organization, a conglomerate, if you will, that we highly support and would do anything to ensure that if there is going to be an opportunity to break neoliberalism in half, well, this might do it. So a lot of you know, there is a collective happening right now amongst railroad workers. And it looks like it's going to get ugly. And that's a good thing because this system will not correct itself on its own. Power concedes nothing. Without demand. As you know, he is a very good friend and somebody who we think very highly of because if there's anyone who's at the forefront of labor in non-corporate left media, it is our friend from The Real News, Maximilian Alvarez. Welcome back to Generational Change. Hey guys, thank you so much for having me back. Great to see you. Hey Max, how's it going? And he is, <clears throat> and he is not coming alone. No, he's bringing a friend. He is bringing a friend who <clears throat> knows all there is to know about the railroad, the railroad worker strike, and perhaps. And I don't think that's the only strike that may be happening. No, no, no. Well, I believe there's going to be an impending UPS situation that's coming up as well. And I have this thought in my head that a simultaneous UPS strike and railroad strike would be so glorious that I don't even know. Like, I, yeah, I'm, I need my yellow. Where's my yellow vest? I have the yellow vest. Get, uh, do we have the yellow vest around here somewhere? Look in the bucket. Oh, look in the I bucket. I could. I think I might need my yellow vest. I'm feeling inspired. So we're going to talk, guys, about the impending railroad strike. Ooh, What's going on with that? Look at this. So there she goes. All right, I'm ready. 
<laughs> Mel, I hope I say it right. Mel Buer, welcome to, I got it. Welcome to Generational Change. Hi. Hi. How Thanks are for you? having me. It's our pleasure. I'm good. I love that yellow vest. Thank you. It was a gift, a gift from the Real Progressives. The, nice. Um, Real progress in action from Steve, Steve Grumbine. Grumbine. <laughs> Mel was actually uh, on the ground in Paris covering the Yellow Vest movement a few years back. Yep. Oh, uh, yep. See, if, if Yellow Vests came with our cars, that would be a first step. But the other issue, of course, is we have no um, security infrastructure. So we don't have health care and we don't have like any sort of safety net. So people can't afford to strike. But that aside, we do need Yellow Vests. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, if only. But this is America and it's kill or be killed. And that's just the way it is. So it looks like this is going to be a time to really call that bluff. Uh, The the economy cannot sustain itself without an ability to transport items all over the place. What is going to happen? So what is going to happen? I think we should start from the top. What brought this on? Where does it begin? And where might it end? Whoever wants to jump in, go right ahead. (laughs) So... I'll do this. I'll, I'll kind of just um, set the table here quickly um, to give folks a sense of where we are right now and the short term answer to how we got here. Then I'll toss it to Mel, um, who wrote a really phenomenal and in-depth piece for the Real News Network earlier this summer, detailing the longer answer to that question. Right? And so, you know, a lot of folks watching and listening, uh, you're probably hearing this week. Right, that we are very close to the first national rail shutdown that this country has experienced on the freight railroad since 1992, and um, you know, so basically the the better part of most of our lifetimes, and you know, it took a long road for us to get here, and in fact, there are many hurdles that have to be cleared in order for a rail strike initiated by the 12 unions representing freight rail workers or the rail carriers uh, who own the railroad companies if they initiate lockouts. A lot of hurdles have to be cleared for them to legally be allowed to do that. And there's a reason for that. Because a century ago, this country saw just how much power working people have in this country, especially on the railroads. They had the power to bring the economy of this country to its knees. And they showed that when they struck on the railroads. The railroad workers uh, struck in 1922. There was the Great Railroad Strike of 1877. There was, of course, the Pullman Strike in 1894, right? The establishment learned its lesson from those strikes and, you know, it snapped into action by pushing through via Congress and the business class that it serves uh, the Railway Labor Act of 1926. The Railway Labor Act is the thing that governs labor relations on the railroads, not the National Labor Relations Act like most other jobs. And there again, there's a reason for that. Essentially, the Railway Labor Act is there to prevent a strike from happening on the country's railroads because of how vital the railroads are to the supply chain, to the economy, um, even national security, so on and so forth, right? So why do I mention that? Because the contract negotiations... Um, the, the contract negotiations that have stalled, that you know, have been fruitless, have been going on for over two years. And again, this is this is these are con, um, uh, uh, contract negotiations between the National Carriers Conference, 
Uh, there's there's so many acronyms from the union side and the the business right. side that I get them jumbled up. But like basically the amalgamated group that represents the seven class one freight railroads uh, at the bargaining table during periods of bargaining. And then there, as I mentioned, the 12 or 13, depending on how you count it, uh, amalgamated craft unions representing um, over 100,000 workers on the country's class one freight railroads. Right. So these negotiations have been going on for two and a half years. They haven't been getting anywhere. The rail carriers refuse to address the longstanding problems that Mel's going to talk about in a second. Um, and we officially reached an impasse in late spring of this year after, again, a provision from the Railway Labor Act kicked in. The um, National Mediations Board stepped in to try to broker an agreement between the two sides. It was unable to do so. Um, the sides were offered the uh, option of entering into binding arbitration, and they rejected that. Then uh, an impasse was officially declared, thus initiating a 30-day cooling-off period. This was in June. So as that cooling-off period counted down, we were getting close to a strike. But another provision in the Railway Labor Act also kicked in at the 11th hour, which was President Biden appointing a presidential emergency board, a special board that is designed to um, step in in situations like these, assess the claims from both sides, uh, issue a formal report recommending um, a solution to the contract dispute. Both sides have the ability to reject those recommendations. So the Presidential Emergency Board released those recommendations in late August. Essentially, um, the solution that it came up with was to throw more money at these workers and address none of the workplace safety, quality of life, uh, or any of the other um, destructive policies that have destroyed the freight rail industry, the supply chain, and the workers who make it run. It addressed none of that. It kicked all that down the road. It threw more money at workers. It uncapped um, their health care costs, which um, would eat up a lot of those wage gains, so on and so forth. So after that happened in August, two sides had the ability to kind of review the recommendations. The carriers, again, the, the business side of this, enthusiastically endorsed the Presidential Emergency Board's recommendations. So that should tell you right there that something might be amiss. The, the workers, of course, um, by and large, have rejected these recommendations because they don't address the issues that have brought us to that point. So that's how we've ended up here, because, um, you know, the, the, the a number of the a number of the leadership of the different craft unions have said that they would accept the terms of the presidential emergency board as the terms for a new contract, but membership still has to vote. Right. And so we still haven't had a lot of those votes. We have had some, a number of them have outright rejected that this week Two, yeah. uh, as of today have accepted those. That's the transportation communications union and the brotherhood of railway carmen who collectively represent around 11,000 workers. So at right now at the 11th hour, and then I'll shut up. We are in this kind of melee where Congress is freaking out. Biden's freaking out. The Democrats in general are freaking out because Biden's polling numbers had finally bounced back. We're close to the midterms and that's all they're really thinking about. They know what uh, the economic impact of a rail shutdown could do to those polling numbers. So right now, Congress is essentially deciding if it will force workers back to work like Congress and President Bush did back in 1992. The question then after that is, will workers obey that order? 
Mel, what do you think? Uh, well, just to sort of add on to this discussion, um, you know, uh, at stake here, uh, and something that has been sort of a main point of contention in contract negotiations for the last many years um, has not only just been the issue of stagnant wages, particularly in the era of COVID, where we are seeing rising costs of inflation and things of that nature, um, as well as the sort of health insurance issues, right? The rising health insurance premiums and things like that. We're, we're also talking about what, what the, the sort of the rail workers have called sort of quality of life issues. And what that means is that at least two of the, the rail carriers, BNSF and, um, oh God, what's the other, uh, one other rail carrier has instituted a, uh, what workers have called a draconian sort of attendance policy that essentially makes it impossible for workers to have a day off. Uh, they are expected to be on call 24 um, seven. Uh, there is no set scheduling for these workers. Um, they are required to, um, you know, uh, call in to see if they are supposed to set, you know, set up and start a shift at a terminal at some point within, you know, an hour to two hours of when they're supposed to be there. Um, this can happen at any time of the day or night. Uh, they can usually be out on a call, you know, on a shift, uh, you know, what, 12 hours on a train, spend anywhere from 10 to 12 hours in a hotel, you know, do another shift. They're gone from home for, you know, a couple of days at a time. And this whole time, they're expected to essentially be at the beck and call of the railroads. Um, and what that means is, you know, these these folks are, you know, a lot of these these guys that I've spoken with over the last five months or so, you know, they're they're relatively young guys. They're in their late 30s, early 40s. They've got kids. They've got family. You know, a lot of these folks have young children. Uh, multiple of these individuals that I've spoken with over the last couple of years have, you know, barely been able to make the birth of their children um, because of the scheduling. Right. Um, if, you know, there's no way to 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 potentially think of an emergency five months down the road because the railroads are asking them to schedule this time off. How can you schedule off a sudden death in the family or an accident, right? Or your child gets sick with COVID and ends up in the ER. You know what I mean? These are the types of things that they're, you know, asking workers to plan for somehow. You know what I mean? Um, and the problem is, is that these contracts don't address these problems, and these problems have been ongoing for at least since December. You know, um, earlier this year, uh, the 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 workers were attempting to essentially initiate a strike as part of a longstanding grievance due to these um, attendance policies. And Max can tell you more about this because he covered this more in depth. But essentially, what happened is that the courts blocked any sort of strike action that maybe would have been able to sway the rail carriers from instituting this really. Uh, effed up attendance policy. You know what I mean? You're asking an already overburdened workforce that has been subject to years and years of layoffs, of stagnant wages, of unsafe working conditions, of lack of train, you know, crew on trains, and you know this continued stress of an already sort of uh, overburdened, beleaguered supply chain that they're trying to prop up, right? Um, and you're asking them to do more. How? How? You know, they have cut straight through to the bone of this workforce. And now they are sitting across from these unions at the bargaining table and they are asking them to accept less than what is I what I would consider like a subterranean bar, bare minimum. 
of what should be, you know, what the workers should be asking for, what the rail carriers should be giving to their workforce, given how vital they are to the continued running of the the uh, economy. And now that we're, you know, a day and a half away from uh, a potential rail shutdown, we have the Biden administration scrambling to keep up. We have rail carriers that are initiating preemptive sort of lockouts, right? Stopping shippers from being able to ship their uh, you know, their freight across the country, they've stopped shipments of any intermodal freight across, you know, I think in Norfolk Southern completely is done this week. They stopped shipping their intermodal freight as of Tuesday, right? This is days ahead of the shutdown, right? Amtrak has completely canceled all of its service except for its Northern Corridor. You know, these are, this is, this is pretty intense stuff. And what we are seeing is, the sort of contractions and ripples through the economy that the rail carriers say is not because of the labor, right? That their profits are not because of the labor that has been put into it. And by labor, I mean the actual human beings who make this, you know, the supply chain and the freight railroads continue to work. They say these profits are not due to them. It's because we did stock buybacks and we invested in all this crap. And all of the workers are like, that's not true. You know, we're the ones who did this for you. And now that we see the potential of this labor being withheld, the entire system is threatening to sort of fall apart as a result. Right. And I don't mean that in a alarmist or in a sort of a way of enacting some sort of grievance against, you know, what is uh, the inevitable ripples in the economy. What we are seeing is workers finally reaching the point where they may be able to withhold their labor in service of securing a contract that they desperately need in order to stay upright, really. Yeah, I just, my question is this, and in these industries, it's all different in terms of what their support network is that allows them to be able to do that. Like, what is their strike fund? Do they have that? I know when we in the past had had the coal miners on um, in Alabama, they were such a very like tight community. And there was such this, like, they were able to go for a long period of time with this support network. Um, So what can we do to make sure that that exists for railroad workers. I mean, like you're saying, you're talking all this stuff and I can't help but smiling. Like you're not alarming me. Like this is like, I'm very excited about this whole thing. Like this is great. And if the UPS workers will strike at the same time, like um, what can we do to help? Yeah. Uh, One thing I would say um, is that as exciting as this is, because it is always exciting and, you know, you feel a certain satisfaction that workers are finally able to, to take this sort of um, concerted step forward in terms of direct action against uh, uh, employers and bosses who would do everything in their power, including spending millions of dollars to drive these workers directly into the concrete. This is a pretty uh, huge step in terms of, uh, you know, the, the the ripple effects of what can happen with a shutdown like this, including with a, you know, a UPS strike would be, would have the same effects, right? We are, we are talking about a, a de facto freezing of uh, vital supply lines across this country, um, which uh, is going to potentially, you know, uh, ripple out for the next couple of weeks, if not months, right? Um, we could see some serious, some serious consequences as a result of this. And it should be, crystal clear that this is not the workers fault. This is the fault of the rail carriers and the employers shooting themselves in the foot essentially and refusing to bargain in good faith with 
the folks across the table, you know, um, as far as, as far as, you know, strike action and things of that nature, you know, the, from the folks that we've talked to and Max, I think you can probably corroborate this. The, the prediction is, is it, is if there is any sort of rail shutdown, it's not going to be a suspended sort of, you know, multi-week, uh, even week long sort of shutdown, right? Mostly right. because we're thinking 12 hours could be $2 billion lost uh, pretty quickly, right? Um, at the most, I think most of the predictions from the folks that I've talked to is is no longer than maybe 24 or 48 hours. Uh, at that point, we could see Congress stepping in. Um, or we could see, you know, these are sort of targeted strikes uh, s- similar to the RMT strikes in the UK, which last for a certain period of time and is really meant to just prove a point and then get back to the negotiating table. Um, we may see something very similar to that. Um, but you can you can bet that no matter what major or even minor town that you live in in this country, there is likely a rail terminal very close to you. And probably within a 45 to 50 to, you know, 60 minute drive from where you are, where you could show up in support on any picket lines um, across this country, whether it's a lockout or it's a strike, you know. Yeah. Um, And each craft union will likely, you know, each craft union that chooses to engage in this type of action will likely have donation points and, and various ways that you can support each of those unions. Because, again, we are talking about a sort of unified group of various uh, industries that all work on the railroads at various points. Anyway, Max. Well, we're we're speaking with Max Alvarez and Mel Buer from the railroad worker strike that is pending on literally uh, at midnight tonight. It will be exactly uh, 48 hours uh, that this could go down. Uh, So this is very close. Um, Max, how do you see this unfolding? Okay. I got a lot of thoughts in here. I'm going to try to concentrate them first. And and dumb it down a little for the cheap seats. I will. Well, first, you asked what folks can do to help. I just wanted to say, you know, Mel, Mel and I have been covering this all year. And it's been like pulling teeth trying to get, you know, mainstream media or politicians in D.C. to care about it. Now... A week before the deadline, suddenly, you know, they, they finally decide to take an interest, right? And so we've been running around doing as many interviews as we possibly can. We've also been trying to get as many railroaders onto these interviews as we possibly can. But because of the very reasons they're prepared to strike, most of them are unavailable, right? They're, they're, they're being dragged all over the country and they don't know when they're actually going to be available to do interviews. So we've been trying to kind of back clean up whenever we can. And... Thank you for being one of like two outlets that's actually asked what can people do to help? Because (laughs) Mel and I were just actually talking about this before we got on. Like, I feel like maybe I'd gotten a little too comfortable in my independent media bubble. But this week has reminded me how dog shit our media ecosystem in this country is, how much the corporate media in this country serves the interests of the ruling class, the business class, not the interests of workers. I am struggling to find, you know, a lot, uh, many articles that actually quote a rank and file worker. And, and it's, it's baffling to me right now. The New York times on its front page has a story that keeps talking about a strike 
doesn't even mention a lockout, even though that is what is currently hurting the economy right now. Not a single worker, as Jonah Furman, the great Jonah Furman, has pointed out on Twitter. There is not a single railroad worker in this country who is on strike. There are, however, a number of rail carriers that are already issuing like soft lockouts, reductions in services because they are trying to bully their customers. They are trying to bully Congress, they're trying to bully everyone into getting their way because they can, because they have developed over the past the past half century an oligopoly on a vital supply chain in this country. And I'm going to talk about that in a second, right? Because what I what I want people to understand, I completely understand that that you are worried about what a potential rail strike initiated by the unions or a rail lockout initiated by the rail carriers would do to the supply chain at a moment when the supply chain is already creaking under the weight of COVID-19. Uh, uh, the war in Ukraine has, rip, has had ripple effects throughout the supply chain. Uh, extreme weather events exacerbated by climate change have, uh, have, have made the supply chain around the world uh, less predictable. And as Mel has written about for The Real News, if you have a breakdown like, the, like a boat in the Suez Canal, that, that, that it has ripple effects throughout the entire world. So what, we, what happens here will impact not just the entire country, but it will have ripple effects in the global economy as well. And I and at a time when inflation is already high, uh, price of goods is already squeezing working people. I understand that you were worried about what this may do to your already overburdened pocketbook. What I want to stress to you is that you are already paying for the ways that corporate billionaires and CEOs and shareholders of these companies have done to the supply chain. You would already be paying less for Almost everything that you stock your house with, all the basic necessities that touch a rail line at some point in their lifetime, right? All of the ways that um, the, the corporate executives who own these companies and have used the rail industry as a cash machine, they have been jacking up prices um, because they can, because we need railroads. There's no way to get around that. You can't offload all of the freight that goes on the rail lines to trucks. That's just not going to happen. If you want an example, look at the ports, right? You know, you can't, you know, unstuck uh, these already stuck ports by pushing everything onto 18 wheelers. You're going to have a bunch of backups like we've been having. And what happens then? Prices go up and that gets passed on to you. That has been happening for decades, right? What we've been calling inflation for the past year in large part is actually just corporate profiteering and price gouging by companies like CSX, like Union Pacific, like BNSF Railway, who have been jacking up prices on their customers for decades at the same time that quality of service has been plummeting and quality of life for the workers who make the railroads run has also been plummeting. So how can you have a situation like this where the customers are pissed off um, on the rails are pissed off. The workers on the rails are pissed off. The people who have to pay the higher prices because the rails are in disarray are pissed off. And yet the corporations that own these railroad companies are um, making record profits, right? And laughing all the way to the bank. How can you have that situation? 
I will tell you how, right? Because this is important to understanding like how we ended up where we are and how the draconian attendance policies and the ways that workers are, you know, begging to, to have a better quality of life, how all that ties into this big mess, right? Because what workers have been telling me and Mel all year in many ways is the same thing that workers at Amazon were telling me in Bessemer in Staten Island. It's the same thing that educators around the country have been telling me for years. It's the same thing that Frito-Lay workers told me when they were on strike last year. It's the same thing. You met, you mentioned the Warrior Met coal strikers. They are still on strike right now. It is one of the longest strikes in American history, and we cannot forget about them. But all of these workers, like so many others, have said the same thing. We want to be treated like human beings. We want to be able to live our lives and actually have a life outside of work. We want to do more than just be beholden to our jobs and be pointed in this or that direction and have nothing to say or do about it. That is what workers have been saying on the railroads for a long time. Now, why do we have to have a situation like that? Of course, it's a rail industry. It's a complex industry. There are going to be derailments. There are going to be delays. You can't have, you know, a precise, a precise schedule all the time. But that's not even the issue. The issue is that the railroad companies have self-inflicted a staffing crisis over the course of decades. In 1980, there were over 500,000 workers working on the railroads. And over the course of the next four decades, they, they the rail carriers chopped that down to 130,000. Since 2015 alone, before COVID-19, they can't blame COVID, this on COVID. Since 2015, the class one freight rail carriers have collectively eliminated over 30% of their workforce. Why? Because it's the cult of the operating ratio. Reduce costs and jack up prices and jack up stock buybacks as much as you possibly can. That has been the modus operandi on the country's railroads. And so if you keep slashing your workforce, if you keep making the trains longer and heavier and more unwieldy, right, then you have you don't have people. If you're a railroad conductor and you get sick and you need to take time off, essentially, the railroads have made it so that you don't have you hardly have anyone to fill that in because they've, they've laid everyone off. They fired everyone. They've gotten there, there used to be five men crews on these big trains. Now they're down to two and the railroads want to get it down to one. Imagine mm -hmm. if there's a derailment on a, and, and there's a car carrying pure chlorine that is like oozing into a small town, right? If you have one person on that car, there's going to be a catastrophic lag before they can actually get to that uh, uh, derailment and do something about it. And a lot of people could die, right? So slashing the workforce so much so often and for so long while, you know, again, they, they have an oligopoly. They, they don't have competitors. They all work in tandem with each other. It's essentially a cartel, right? So they can do this. The, the, the people who depend on the freight system can't really go anywhere else. They're going to pay the higher prices. They're going to pass those higher prices on to consumers as much as they possibly can. 
Meanwhile, um, the, the railroads are currently complaining about a labor shortage that they have caused. And because they have continuously tried to cut their labor costs, what that means is piling more work onto fewer workers, making their lives more miserable and making them more unsafe. But it also means that they need to instill these draconian attendance policies because if you have, like anyone, take a, a, a break, it's going to throw the whole system off because you don't have reserves to fill that in. That yeah, there's no workers left. They have all the workers that they have. This is the true definition of a skeleton crew across the entire industry. So if you have folks taking time off for things like, oh, I don't know, the birth of your child, for example, or, you know, an unplanned sickness, throws the whole thing into a, you know, nightmare disarray, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Imagine a federal jobs guarantee where we offered everybody a really good wage for a clean infrastructure and like light rail work. Well, Imagine. you know, you know, what's interesting is that BNSF currently has uh, job uh, applications open for conductor trainees, right? You can find some some interesting sort of um, uh, uh, job postings, right? They're offering $20,000 sign-on bonuses after four months because they are hurting for, uh, you know, uh, workers, essentially. The thing is, is you can offer something that attractive and they're not going to get a lot of folks. And this is something that both Max and I have heard from individuals all across the, the rail industry is that it's really hard to get someone to sign up to a job, give throw a bunch of money in their face and then tell them that within six months, it's going to be the worst job they've ever had in their lives. You know, mm -hmm. they're not going to be able to raise a family, that they're not going to be able to, uh, you know, have a day off or see their kids compete in, in softball games or any of these things that, you know, previously working on the railroads, the steady paycheck, the pride that you had in your job could afford you. You know what I mean? Um, and many multi-generational railroad workers are discouraging their children and family members from signing up on the railroads. Because they know that they, you know, they can't in good ethical consciousness, you know, just say, this is fine, you'll be fine, when they know for a fact that it's not fine. And that they are essentially signing up their family members to indentured servitude on the railroads. You know what I mean? Like, that's just not something that they're willing to do. And so even though they've got these incredible sign-on bonuses, you know, all these incentives to, to show up, they're still not able to, to retain this workforce because what they've created is a completely inhumane, untenable situation for anyone uh, who with even, you know, half of a mind to be able to understand that like, this is not okay, right? And, you know, we are now almost three years into contract negotiations where unions rightfully have dug their feet in and said, no, no, there's no concessions here. This is not okay. We cannot do this. You're either going to talk to us like we're human beings or we're going to we're going to take this all the way to its logical endpoint. And this is what we're seeing now, you know, uh, less than, you know, two days from uh, a shutdown is the, the unions going. Ah, sorry, you don't get to do this to us for another round of contracts. I'm sorry. No, this is not happening. Um, you either talk to us and negotiate like adults or we'll we'll do this. We we're not afraid to walk out. Right. Um, which I love given that I and I didn't realize this, Max, which I'm upset that I didn't know that the railroad industry wasn't under the National Labor Relations Act. And which I, I I'm annoyed that I didn't know this because I actually took a lot of labor law classes. Like, how do I not know this? But it sounds to me like it's almost they're in a right to work 
kind of situation, which is what we have here in Florida, right? Like the, the, everything is harder for them to do as far as labor would be concerned that would be offered to them if they were under the National Labor Relations Act. And they're still willing to take a stand. That's how bad this is. It is bad, right? And I think that people should sit and think about what the ripple effects of the decisions that are made now could be not just for workers on the railroad and thus the supply chain and thus the economy, right? But for the labor movement writ large, right? We need to rally behind these workers. You know, we need to stand in solidarity with the folks on the railroads, right? Because they are taking a stand, of course, for themselves, their co-workers and their families. In many ways, they're also taking a stand for all of us, right? Because again, Congress hasn't done crap to stop this corporate pillaging of the supply chain that, again, has not just meant more profits for CEOs, executives, and their shareholders. It has meant the literal destruction of the supply chain. Service has gone down. Trains are sitting idle for longer. That hurts small businesses that need, you know, their freight moved. That hurts big businesses. That destroys an already um, burdened agricultural sector, right? What the rail carriers have done to the economy is criminal. And yet no one's done anything to do uh, about it, right? But everyone kind of knows about it. I mean, the Surface Transportation Board Chairman, Martin Oberman, said, are estimated that since 2010, the class one freight railroads have spent $46 billion more on stock buybacks and dividends than investment in the rail infrastructure and maintenance of the railroads. So they are, they again, they have taken a vital piece of the economy that, ha, that has been, corp, the corporate consolidation has taken effect so that you have now seven rail carriers that that have oligopolized the entire system. Wall Street took notice because they know when, in fact, there is no real competition. That means that they can just gouge prices as much as they possibly can. That is what they have been doing for decades. And the government knows it, but they're not doing anything about it. Railroad workers are really the last stop, right? They are taking the last stand here and saying enough is enough. If we keep going down this road, uh, uh, there's not going to be an economy left for us. There aren't going to be workers to actually do this work. We're having trouble hiring people and retaining people, as Mel uh, rightly pointed out already. And, you know, like, so you take all of that together. Then, Jen, you add what you just talked about. This is where it gets really serious, right? Because labor's greatest power has always been to withhold our labor, right? That is, that is, workers have strength in numbers and their greatest strength is collectively withholding their labor. That is how labor's greatest wins have been gotten in the past. Because the railroad workers and labor relations on the railroads are governed by the Railway Labor Act and not the National Labor Relations Act, they technically do still have the right to strike. But as we are watching in real time, how good is that right? What what does that right count for if Congress can just essentially rip it away from you at the last minute? We have been working up to this point for years and, at, and, and Congress hasn't been paying attention. But now that they're worried about what it'll do, the economy and their polling numbers and yada, 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 suddenly they have a vested interest in ripping you know, labor's like essential right away from these workers and thus like trying to force them back to work. But it's even worse because this is this is what the rail carriers have been banking on the entire 
time. This is why even after the Presidential Emergency Board recommendations came out, and, and actually before that, the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, one of the two biggest unions representing workers on the railroads, that's the BLET, and the other is the uh, Transportation Division of the Sheet Metal Air uh, Rail and Transportation Division. These represent, you know, like uh, around 60,000 workers. The BLET uh, 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 took a uh, strike authorization vote in June and, and the membership overwhelmingly said that they are ready to strike. That was before the Presidential Emergency Board rec- uh, put out its recommendations. So the rail carriers have been knowing that workers like are unhappy with how they've been treated at the bargaining table and been treated at the shop floor. After the presidential emergency board recommendations came out in August, the rail carriers got basically everything they wanted and they really rubbed salt in the wound. Mel mentioned this earlier, but I want to read it for you guys because this line is tattooed on the brains of every rail worker. They've all read this report. The infamous page 32 of the of Biden's presidential emergency board written report says, and I state, quote, the carriers, again, the companies, maintain that capital investment and risk are the reasons for their profits not underline any contributions by labor. So while these workers have been sacrificing, while they've been losing time with their families, while they've been working while sick, the, the carriers have the gall to spit in their face and say, none of these corporate profits are because of you. And that's why you should not get to share in any of the largesse that we have reaped from this corporate pillage that, that we have instigated on the railroads for this long. And so the last thing that I'll say is that the carriers know how much they're screwing the workers and how much they're screwing all of us, which is why they are holding the economy hostage right now. They are the ones who are already instituting lock uh, slowdowns and soft lockouts. They are the ones who are already hurting people in the agricultural sector and businesses that that are getting reduced um, service on the freight railroads already. And Mel, Mel already mentioned that even Amtrak, the Amtrak lines that use the freight, Amtrak trains that use freight um, lines are going to be t- uh, 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 stopped coming tomorrow. The rail carriers, this, this the, the, the presidents of the BLET and Smart TD came out with a statement this Sunday, and they called this corporate terrorism. And, and honestly, I think that's pretty apt um, because that is what they're doing. They are holding the economy hostage because they know the more pressure they put on the economy, the more it's going to incentivize Congress to just say what Republican senators already said earlier this week, which is let's force the workers back to work. But not only that, let's force them to accept the presidential emergency board recommendations as the term for a new contract and thus taking away another one of their essential rights, which is to vote on that contract. That is what Congress is is kicking around right now. These are the solutions that they're coming up with to essentially give the rail carriers everything they want while they're holding a gun to our heads. I think it goes without saying, um, I often point out that there's a reason why Teddy Roosevelt is my favorite president. Um, one of the first things he had to deal with as president in 1902 was the coal strike. And of course, he landed on the side of the workers, not the barons. Um, it seems to me, and I do not mince words, uh, I think Joe Biden has basically been a borderline failure of a president. And one of the reasons I feel that way is because of how he's dealt with labor. And the fact that he has come down in favor of the oligarchs, shocking. Uh, is in many re- ways why we're here right now. What I don't even don't even get me started on Buttigieg. Uh, where right now could the president step in 
and provide some sense of relief. Clearly, he's not doing it. And we are, my apologies, at midnight tonight, we are 24 hours away from the strike officially commencing. Why are we here? And what could the president do to prevent this from going further? Mel, I'm catching my breath, so I'm going to toss that to you. (laughs) Uh, Short answer, if there is such a thing. Um, The Biden administration has run out many of its sort of uh, sort of chips, if you will. It's laid out a lot of the sort of dominoes that it could potentially do in order to try and avert this Uh, from happening. It's laid pressure on both sides to continue sitting at the negotiating table. We had Labor Secretary Walsh, uh, Marty Walsh today. Yep. uh, Sitting down with both sides to try and encourage both sides to continue to come to some sort of agreement, right? Um, And continue these negotiations. Uh, We've got this um, emergency legislation, this joint resolution that was put forth in the Senate by a bunch of GOP senators that was blocked by Bernie Sanders uh, in the last couple of hours um, uh, in order to try and continue to keep these negotiations moving forward. As far as the Biden administration's ability to move forward with anything, um, you know, uh, Max might be able to sort of enlighten you on, on specific things. But my inclination is really... Not a whole lot, right? A lot of behind the doors sort of glad handing and, and, and pressuring of, of various groups to move forward. Um, but the reality here is that like, you know, we've kind of seen it run its course. The, the Biden administration is very, very, well, let, let's just say Democrats at large um, have, there's not a whole lot of, of conversation happening here. Right. It feels like radio silence. You know, I was talking to a worker today. I was getting his his, um, sort of sense on this whole thing. He's an organizer with one of the craft unions. Um, And he was like, you know, honestly, we just haven't heard much from folks, Mm -hmm. which is concerning. Right. Normally, these these usually pro labor, very outspoken individuals across, you know, various industries would have something to say. And they've been uncharacteristically silent the last couple of, you know, last 10 days or so. Um, And it's concerning because that signals to a lot of folks is that Washington plans on and will continue to abandon them. Uh, to the mercy of the rail carriers and whatever they can potentially do as a, as a united front uh, against these employers, right? Um, which is something that I, I've also seen, something that folks like Ron Kamenkow has probably predicted on multiple occasions is that, you know, when the chips are down, the folks who have the most political clout or, or sort of capital to gain, they will choose the easier, softer way to ensure that they maintain uh, the, the sort of little subsection of power that they have managed to gather over the last however many years while they're in, ten- in their tenure. And we're seeing the same thing, right? Um, folks who have their pockets in the various lobbying interests are predictably going in one direction. And the folks who have a vested interest in maintaining their position ahead of a very contentious midterm election are doing nothing. Right. Yeah, that sounds about right. Right. Um, you know, um, and, and it's not sexy enough for them. It's not sexy enough. It's not well, like, honestly like they let's be let's be real. Most of the people down the street in D.C. did not even know that this was an issue until last week. 
That's right? true. Like, 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 even I, though I, even though the Surface Transportation Board has been like screaming into the void for the last six months and longer, you know, they've been holding hearing after hearing after hearing that says, hello, we've got a bunch of these, you know, senators and Congress people who are hearing from businessmen in their states going, the railroads are not working. How do we fix this? You know, like letters and, you know, all of these hearings that are happening, you know, you could probably catch all of them on YouTube. You know, the, you know, SCB uh, chairman, even a year and a half ago is saying the railroads are running their workforce into the ground. How are we going to fix this? Because this is a problem. You know what I mean? This yeah, but all they care about is Mar-a-Lago and the raid on Trump and what's the documents. And that's basically the news cycle. Like that, well, that's what people care about. We could certainly have a conversation about what is the sexiest in, in mainstream news coverage. You know what I mean? But yeah. as far as like, if you're an elected official, you've been elected to uh, represent a constituency in any number of, of the vested interests that voters have because they are human beings who care about the place that they live. You have a responsibility as an elected official to do your job, right? Um, and frankly, within the bubble of D.C., uh, you're never going to be able to hear what you need to hear. You're, you're too you're too enmeshed in this whatever is whoever's whispering in your ear about what's important and what's not important. Um, unless you're actually listening to the folks who are calling into your office, should you actually keep your voicemail on? You know what I mean. You're not going to hear this kind of stuff. Um, and what happens? We get this scramble, this mad dash, which does no good to the workers who have been living under these conditions for at least the last year, who have been living under, working under an expired contract since 2020. Man, wow. 2020. And these contracts have terms, by the way. We're getting we're getting into the next, what is it? The next year and a half, we have another uh, contract that's up for negotiation. Like if we're actually caring about the timing here, you know what I mean? So the rail carriers have dragged their feet that long that, the, the calendar is flipping again. What? You know what I mean? Um, these are supposed to be adults, by the way, who are supposed to be, you know, good at their job. There's no know? adults in the room. No, this, no this is actually very apropos after we had Tom Hartman on this. We were just talking about his book, which is The Hidden History of Neoliberalism in America. And this is so spot on, like one of the results of the neoliberalism policy that got us here. And I think... The best place to wind down the conversation is how's this going to end? Because well, right now it's, I honestly, uh, I, I don't, if Bernie was in, in charge, I think this would have been settled a long time ago, but we are where we are. And right huh. now it feels like the whole system is cratering. And I do wonder if we are ever going to get to, let's say a general strike, this may be the best opportunity for a lot of people, uh, you know, to start a stand in, stand in solidarity with the railroad workers. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, that's well put. And, you know, shout out, shout out to Bernie. Like he was on the floor earlier today being like standing up for rail workers and Mitch McConnell's out here trying to make political hay about it saying, Oh, Democrats just, you know, stopped our plan. They've torpedoed this. They're the reason that the economy is going to fail or whatever, whatever yeah. sort of uh, alarmist tone he wants to take. It's he continues again, to strip rights away from Americans. 
Yeah, that was that was McConnell and the Republicans plan, right, was take away workers right to strike, take away their right to even have a vote on a contract, force a contract down their throats, force them back to work and save the economy. That was what they offered. So I think Mel said it like the bar is on the floor, right? Democrats have to clear that. Right. If you can offer more than that, you're already ahead of the Republicans. And yet we're still here wondering if they are even going to manage to clear that bar. They No, they they're dragging not. their feet. They're, they're literally dragging they're dragging their feet. They'll trip over it before they actually clear it. You know. Yeah. So so what could happen? Right. I mean, even the guys that we're talking to, Mel and I, you know, we're we're texting with a lot of these folks on a daily basis. You know, we're trying not to bug them because, you know, again, they're they're um, getting hit up by a lot of media. Now that we're getting close to the strike, but they're also working a lot and um, there's, there's a whole lot going on. But we've been keeping our ear to the rail, as Ron Cam and Co. of Railroad Workers United loves to say. Also, for parentheses for folks out there watching, if you want to keep your ear to the rail and know uh, up to date, like what is happening and what railroad workers are saying, you should go follow Railroad Workers United on Facebook, Twitter, and check out their website. It's an invaluable source of information. What they are is a solidarity caucus that tries to bring together the 12 or 13 amalgamated um, craft rail unions, because that's all, that's another side of the story that we didn't get a chance to talk about. And there's probably, we probably should save that till after you know, whatever happens this week happens. But this is something that the Railroad Workers United folks have talked about for a long time, right? The very fact that the crafts in the the railroad industry are broken up into 12 different union memberships, you know, it really dilutes the power that railroad workers could collectively have. Now, there are a lot of acts of solidarity uh, that can be taken to shore up that power, like um, the unions that have even voted to accept a tentative agreement have also said they will honor picket lines for the other um, striking unions, right? So what that means to answer your question about like what could happen, how is this going to end? Um, you know, the most likely uh, outcome was always going, because again, this is what the rail carriers have been banking on. That's why they've been acting the way that they have, because they are cocksure that this is the inevitable result that Congress, like in 1992, is going to, and the president are going to force workers back to work with maybe like minimal additions to the PEB recommendations. So right now, what the best that we are currently hoping for from Democrats, when I say we, this is like what, you know, workers are telling us is one, they could extend, you know, the negotiation period, they could extend the cooling off period for another month. And they could say, let's come back to the table and try to hash this out. But realistically, what are they trying to hash out? They still don't have sick days, right? Workers were were begging for sick days and contract negotiations, didn't get it. And the presidential emergency board did not even suggest that they have that. The, the, the PEB said you'll get one more personal day per year, no more federal holidays, no paid sick days, no additions to your uh, uh, um, non-taxable meal per diem that hasn't been uh, raised since the 1990s. Uh, we're going to uncap your your healthcare costs. Like so, that's what the presidential emergency board offered. So, if Biden and the Democrats decide to extend that, what they may get is maybe a sick day, right? <laughs> like we're we're really like at the bottom of the barrel here. Um, they could extend the negotiations. They could hash out a deal uh, in the next twenty four hours. Um, but even then, the membership's not going to vote on it. So it's gonna it's gonna they're not going to have time to vote on it. Yeah, the so, deadline's going to pass either way. Yeah. And then, you know, rail carriers can initiate a lockout immediately or 
uh, you know, railroads can, can go on strike. So we're just out of time, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah. It's already been two years. That's like the fact. Almost three at this point. Right. So the fact that they would come back and say, yeah, let's take another month and think about this. Um, that, that we're, That's ridiculous at this point. Well, and, you know, as Max has said, you know, this is something that as far as like what's next, you know, I, I think that a vast majority of workers, um, you know, are fairly young folks in their late 30s, early 40s are the folks that I've talked to. It's a relatively sort of middling age workforce in many different ways. Um, they were not around for the strike in, you know, the shutdown in the 90s. They were not around for the, this sort of uh, uh, process to happen. So a lot of folks, I think, are just kind of... Um, trying to see what happens. Yeah. You know, um, there's so many different options in terms of what could happen next. Um, and it's hard to sort of, it's hard to make predictions. The one thing that I can say is that the workforce, the vast majority are galvanized and ready, you know, and are, I have been since shit since May, since June said that, you know, if it comes to it, we're prepared, you know, we're ready to go. I'm here, and I just want to thank you both for doing such a wonderful job. I know I'm the only person on Capitol Hill who gives a damn about the working class. It's unfortunate that it's that way. Max, good to see you. Mel, nice to meet you. Really appreciate all your hard work. Remember, when we stand together, it doesn't matter what happens on Capitol Hill. If the workers unite, there is no stopping <laughs> the progressive movement. That's what's got to happen. I know I didn't make that big of a difference, but I was able to block uh, that stupid Senator McConnell's bill. Really, really dumb. <laughs> Not helping the working people. But we are going to continue to build that movement. I wish I was the president right now. I would definitely be on the side of the workers. Unfortunately, my good friend Joe, remember Jen? She's he's he's not your friend. No, he's my friend. He's, he's my friend. I don't have many, friend. but he's one of them. Yeah, you need better friends. He needs to do a better job of recognizing that it is time for a worker revolution in the United States. That's what needs to happen. Yeah. Good to see you guys. <laughs> well said bernie <laughs> thanks for having us on guys thank you thank you so much for coming on and educating us about where max, we are with this max and mel how can people find you uh what you're working on obviously uh I was real, real news. news the real news network um please the floor is yours before you yeah go. thank you yeah so um you know as y'all said um you know, please, please support the work that we do. Um, you know, not just the the great work that, that y'all do here on this channel, but all independent media. Because again, we've seen this week how vital it is to have better media and we deserve better media. Working people in this country deserve a better class of media than what we have in this country. Uh, a media ecosystem that has largely ignored this issue. And then when it has paid attention It's very much been corporate propaganda that barely even touches, let alone talks to uh, workers and the issues that they're facing. So, you know, uh, again, like if you can support the work that we do, it's because of places like The Real News that I and Mel have been able to go in as much depth reporting on this over the course of the year as we have. But, you know, we're still a nonprofit news network um, that are, you know, we, we don't take corporate money. We don't do ads or paywalls or stuff like that. So you can find us at The Real News um, 
network, therealnews.com, the real new at the real news on Twitter, Facebook, and so on and so forth. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Maximilian. That's M-A-X-I-M-I-L-L-I-A-N underscore A-L-V. Um, and you, I'll toss it to Mel, but you should absolutely support all of her work. Subscribe to her Patreon and keep an eye out for her kick-ass book that's coming next year. Thanks. Yeah, uh, you can find me uh, mm -hmm. on Twitter. Pretty much, I don't have much other social media that I have public, um, and that's Mel underscore Buer. So M E L underscore B U E R. Um, I would like to say before I, you know, tout this, I, I'm writing a book. Don't worry about it. I'll talk more about it next year. Uh, what I want to say, though, is that The Real News has been um, an absolutely wonderful publication of which I've been able to have some sort of, you know, a, a bit of a partnership as a, as a regular contributor. And they are currently in the midst of a fundraising drive. Um, and absolutely, you should, if you can. Um, give something to this outlet. Um, you can go, they have a nice, beautiful banner once you go to the main homepage. So if that's, you know, the easiest way to find it, please do give something, whether it's a monthly donation or just a one-time donation, they do amazing work. And, you know, the longer they stay open, the more stories I get to publish, the more I get paid. You know what I mean? So therealnews.com. Yeah. Therealnews.com. Yeah. Please. If you, if you really give a crap about independent media, folks like Max and the, the crap that he's done at the real news over the last couple of years has been absolutely vital to yeah. continuing uh, uplifting worker stories. And you, if you have money to give, don't give it to my Patreon give it to them. Okay. Anyways, thank you. I appreciate thank the time you so much for that you've on. given to us. Yeah. Absolutely. Both of you guys no, cannot emphasize enough the importance of non-corporate left media, especially working together in concert, you know, it's where I get my news. Yeah, well, I mean, it's like you yeah. guys status coup. Like I, I haven't watched regular, like mainstream in years. Like, I mean, other than every once in a while, I have to flip over and see what the rubes are talking about. But like, <laughs> um, there's no information there. It's just, it's just cheers for your, for your tribe. Um, and it doesn't, I don't learn anything there. It's, it's very gross. So I very much appreciate what you guys do. Cause if it weren't for you and like Jordan, I probably, and a few other people, I probably wouldn't know anything. Well, now you know a lot. I know. And a lot we just now. learned a hell of a lot this evening. Uh, my prediction, uh, there will be a strike. Uh, how long it's going to last. Uh, Good. it depends on how stupid Congress is, mm -hmm. uh, but they're pretty stupid. So <laughs> with all due respect, yeah. uh, it's there are some smart ones there, but unfortunately, shout out Katie Porter. Yes. Well, Kate, listen, we need about, we need about 50 Katie Porters in yeah. Congress. Uh, but again, right now, uh, it's not looking good, but it always has to get worse before it gets better. So hopefully more and more people will recognize just how significant this is yeah. probably by close of business on Friday. Yeah. They'll have a really good idea of just how bad the situation is, but Maybe most of all, and maybe most importantly of all, just how important labor really is in this country. And that is the greatest lesson that could be learned. Because like you said, it could be one day, it could be $2 billion in profit loss right Good. there. Well, if you're going to break the corporate stranglehold that you have on this country, Good. I think the railroad workers is probably Good. the place where it's going to happen. So yep. that said, Max Alvarez, Mel Buer, thank, thank you, you so much for so coming much. on. We definitely will have you back if you will come back. Yes, absolutely. Thank yeah. you, guys. Thanks so much, guys. Solidarity Bye. forever. Solidarity Bye. with the railroad workers. Yeah.
Anytime, brother. Take care, man. So as you can imagine, it's it's not it, it it does look grim right now. Well, when you say grim, I don't find that grim. Well, I don't find it grim. I find it necessary. It, it is. But I'm gonna before we go, and just so you guys know, we are oh. going to have the debate between <gasps> Michael oh, Schellenberger is, and Ryan Grimm. It it's is gonna, gonna happen. happen it is going to happen at 1 p.m. on Friday. So special. This is a really busy week for us. So week. Ryan Grimm versus Michael Schellenberger. And now I'm going to have to find out where we can go and be on a picket line. Yeah. I really don't know those locations because we're talking about, yeah, I don't know where a lot of those things happen. Because a lot of what we're talking about, like freight rail and stuff like that, like I don't know where any – like I know where like the commuter stuff is, but that's not where I think things happen. Make sure you tune in on Friday. This is going to be a very interesting conversation. Obviously, a lot of it is related to what is going to happen regarding how we are going to transfer to a clean energy grid. Michael Schellenberger, who was an independent candidate for governor in California, is at the forefront of really pushing for nuclear power. Obviously, Ryan Grimm is very skeptical of that. We believe that there's probably a happy medium somewhere. I see both sides of it, but I just I think there's an answer. There's a scientific answer, and you go with that. You go with what's the most reasonable thing to do that isn't based on fear or profit, and that's what you do. That would be my solution. Okay, so since David Allen has decided to join the chat and is giving his two cents about what actually happens in terms of being able to mitigate the situation, I'm going to bring up um, what is one of the most important inflection points in our nation's history and, of course, comes at the hands of my favorite president, Teddy Roosevelt. So for those of you who are probably not familiar with the very famous coal strike of 1902, which was a new era in labor and government, uh, you know what? This isn't that long, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read really? the whole thing. Really? You're going to read the whole thing? Okay. Give okay. Me Give me it. Come on. I see you guys think I ain't some stiff. You are a little stiff. You shuck. Oh, good God. <laughs> okay. In most of the strikes in the late 1800s, the United States government either did not intervene or went so far as to intervene on the side of management. Shocker. Federal troops were used in the Great Railroad Strikes of 1877 and 1894. That would put us with President Grant and 1894 is oh, President, President Cleveland. So a Republican and a Democrat, it doesn't matter. For instance, however, the actions of Teddy Roosevelt and the coal strike of 1902 set a new tone in labor-government relations. This became a centerpiece of Roosevelt's progressive reputation in the coming years and showed that Republicans as well as Democrats could respond to the era's zest for reform. Coal was a very common method of home heating in the early 1900s. Often there would be a central stove connected to a ventilation system with a steady supply of fresh coal needed to keep the system working. There was no real backup material at the time. It would be until the 1920s and later that coal was widely challenged as a home heating material, thank God. The coal mining region of eastern Pennsylvania rose to meet this demand. There are two primary types of coal. Bitch, uh, come on, the source lady. Bithumi, I'm, I'm usually good at these. Where are we looking? Bithumius. Bituminous. Bituminous and anthracite. anthracite. Anthracite, I know. While bitu- 
Bituminous. Bituminous. I was bituminous. Okay. When bituminous coal is easier to ignite and more commonly found in the U.S., anthracite <laughs> coal is a superior product when it comes to providing heat. The eastern region of PA contained and still contains the largest deposits of anthracite coal in the U.S. Shocker. And you wonder why Fetterman cannot be completely af- uh, against coal. Where are we going? What, what are we doing with this whole thing, though? And furthermore, located conveniently to all of the major northern industrial cities in the early 1900s, coal miners had a number of grievances related to the work they performed. Coal was extracted from deep shafts, and the process was labor intensive. Hazards abounded. 200 people or more died in a single incident at Skullfield Mine in Utah in 1900. In the country as a whole, well over 1,000 miners died each year. From 1900 all the way through the end of World War II, pay was also a serious issue. Labor shortages had been solved with the use of immigrants from Europe. Wow. Hours were long. Operators of the mines were not disposed. Would it make you happy if it were slaves from Africa? Definitely. We're, dis- <laughs> we're disposed to compromise on such issues. In 1900, there has been an incident between the Pennsylvania miners and the mine operators, and the operators had been pressured to make concessions by the McKinley presidential campaign, lest the strike cause bad precedent as a re-election contest. The union representing these miners was the United Mine Workers of America, led by John Mitchell. In early 1902, this union made demands for additional wage increases and an eight-hour workday. Ding, ding. And the resulting impasse led to the strike of May. It's not impasse. It's impasse. Led to a strike on May 12th, 147. And imagine this at the time, considering how long ago it was. 147,000 workers left their job on this day, determined to press their position to the utmost. Mine owners led in this contest by George Baer of the Pennsylvania and Reading Railroad if you've ever played Monopoly, you would know that, were equally determined to dig in without the distractions of a national election to pressure them in further concessions. At first, there was little reason to believe that this would be any more than more remarkable than the myriad other work stoppages of the, of the era. The longer the miners remain off the job, the more the mines fell into despair. Yet most of the mine owners assumed that the strike would collapse if they maintained their own resolve. Hired guards of questionable quality, <laughs> we know what that means, and scruples, see the coal and iron police, ooh, that sounds bad, surrounded the mines when the strikers intercepted and harassed incoming trains and threatened the lives of any scabs. As summer turned into fall, it became clear that no quick solution was forthcoming. Watching from Washington, Teddy Roosevelt became increasingly alarmed. The cost of coal in the U.S. continued to increase, putting consumers and businesses alike at the mercy of a shortage. Public anxiety about prospect of a winter without coal was beginning to make itself felt. Additionally, this was at the beginning of a great progressive era in American politics and society. Where just eight years previous, Grover Cleveland had dispatched the U.S. Army to end a railroad strike in Illinois. Roosevelt now had different ideas. Using his personal and political connections, he was able to establish a commission to settle the issues brought forth in the strike. The initial meeting took place on October 3rd with all the key actors, and it was decided that a longer-term investigation would commence. In return, the miners returned to work on October 23rd in time to ensure a steady supply for the winter. At the time, the Anthracite Coal Strike Commission began its work. After much political wrangling, this commission eventually ended up with seven members, including one labor union man, whose official role was eminent sociologist 
This commission interviewed 538 people in the coal industry, both workers and management, over the course of three months. They also extensively toured the anthracite coal region of PA. Their final verdict was a 10% increase in wages and a 10% decrease in working hours from 10 to 9 per day. That was like a Charles Dickens version of just saying what happened. The legacy of the strike. Politically, Roosevelt's strong intervention worked to his advantage. Many third-party businesses had been dependent on the coal industry and were not completely opposed to the Roosevelt stance. The incident played to Roosevelt's reputation as a vigorous, action-oriented president, and Roosevelt himself did not shy away from expressing his opposition to corporate monopolies. He won the biggest electoral victory in our nation's history in 1904 against a more conservative bourbon Democrat the longer-term effects of the strike were just just as important. Where the federal government in the past have been strongly pro-business in such labor disputes and now acted in a more neutral manner, which is a a win for labor, this pretended a shift in mentality that eventually led to- Portended. Portended. Okay, the source lady. Eventually led to much (laughs) increased regulations such as the Hepburn Act and the Pure Food and Drug Act. That is actually having regulation on the quality of your food. Okay, so is that the end? Is that the finale yet? It would be decades before unions won full protection and recognition in the eyes of the federal government. The Wagner Act of 1935 under Franklin Roosevelt was the capstone in that regard, driven by the perils of the Great Depression. However, in the process, it had, had a beginning point. It could be said to the strike. Where did it begin? It began with the strike of 1902 and Teddy Roosevelt's response. Are we done now? Thank you. That's the difference between a bad president and a great president. And that's how significant of a difference it really is. And again, this is one of the biggest reasons why Teddy Roosevelt, you can look at Washington, you can look at Lincoln, you can look at FDR. But for my money, the reason I side with Teddy as being our greatest commander in chief is simply this. He stood up to corporate power. And he protected our environment like no other president ever did. Okay. And so there's a lot that Joe could learn from this. Will he learn anything? I don't know that Joe's brain absorbs anymore. I think it's shriveled up. I don't think it absorbs. Whatever he's doing, the fact that there's two things to think about. And everyone wants to assume that Joe was having like a good week or good weeks for that matter. His speech regarding MAGA Republicans was a failure, no matter what the Democratic side of things wants you to believe. The Democrats really were trending in the right direction towards the midterms. And then he had to go and give that ridiculous speech. They were also trending in a very good direction. And now the president of the United States who's had almost two years in office to deal with this problem and hasn't dealt with it, is now coming to a head. And I do believe there's going to be a strike. What do you think? I hope there's a strike. Do you think it will commence? Do you think they'll Um, hold it in 24 hours? I do. I think it's been over two years that these people have not had their contract dealt with. And I think that they're finally done. And it isn't just about the money. And that's the same thing that's going on with like the UPS workers. It isn't just about the money. It's about their working conditions and how they're treated. And, And this is something that people, I think, just largely don't understand. Yeah. yeah. And, and by the way, this whole like dark Brandon thing, which I don't get that at all. I don't understand any of that. I don't understand why that's Yeah, funny. I understand that everybody was trying to make that a big deal. But just remember, guys, everyone well, was all was gung-ho it? about the fact that Joe Biden clipped some of the student debt, which was nice. Okay. Well, guess what? 
it now looks like he's reneging on what well, he actually did. Well, that doesn't surprise me. It wasn't enough anyway. But the whole, like, are they trying to, like, own the Let's Go Brandon fiasco? And they're trying to, like, rebrand that? I don't understand what the dark Brandon thing is. He's not doing anything but throwing little crumbs in hope that it's enough that he'll be able to maintain their position in 24, it's, which they won't. It's a Band-Aid on a gaping wound, and it ain't going to work. And if you're going to learn anything, as is gonna- the case, <laughs> remember, make sure to get a copy of The Hidden History of Neoliberalism in America. Yeah. Shout out to Tom Hartman. And again, love his work. Don't agree on everything. Yeah, I don't get this. Like if we had a president that was a real sort of go getter, renegade, really, if this is who we're pushing people for 24 mansion parliamentarian. That's our president. That's our pres and vice pres right there. I don't know her name, but we'll just go with parliamentarian. Uh, what should mansion, we do? Parliamentarian. Anybody who becomes a $10 patron will get one of these beautiful stickers. <laughs> so we'll, we'll if you stick really it in. want I've- one. You know, hey, we got to sell our show. Somehow, we got to sell right? our show. But um, yeah, I mean, there is no dark. Brandon is not. I don't understand that. It's sort of like making it's almost like giving him like props for the bare minimum of nothingness. And I don't understand it. I don't understand why we're. Well, why this is kind of like a, a, I don't understand this what is that kind is. of like a labor uh, friend that I have in Michigan who basically is espousing the same thought process, which is when you beat so many people into submission, they think and. Anything that's positive is like the well. It's thing like ever. battered spouses. Like we just don't think we're entitled to better. Like we don't feel like we should have better. And I don't dark Brandon or light Brandon or whatever Brandon he is. He sucks. He's not doing anything. He's not. I I, I just they're really grasping at straws. And I don't know why they would need assistance from people saying like that this is so rogue of him. He's so crazy. If you really want to know, if you really want to know just how effective Joe Biden really is, let's see how many times he's actually invited to campaign in in key swing states. Then you'll know for sure. Then you'll know. Because if there's one thing I could tell you, there's a big difference between Trump and Joe that Trump was always invited to speak at rallies when the GOP was having their elections. Like, I cannot imagine Fetterman wanting Joe Biden to come around. No, I don't. I don't think that's going to happen. That would not be good at all. So anyway. He's a, guys, ne- he's a negative. He's what you would call a net negative. Yeah, despite what the polls say, if, his, if, if Joe was really trending at 50%, you better believe they would have him out there campaigning for these candidates. If you're not going to see that, then it ain't anywhere near that, so. I digress. I, and I also question those polls anyway. I, I Now, after what I saw in 2016 alone, yeah, I question every poll. Well, that's the thing. Poll. People tell me what a poll says. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, the day I, that you, the day that it was basically a month before the Iowa caucus that we all know Bernie Sanders won, when you had a poll that suggested that Hillary Clinton was up by 59 points, at that point, I was like, okay, this clearly is BS. And you have an agenda and you have a narrative and you got to fill it. Sure. And why? Because there's a lot of money invested in polls. That's the if you guys are so inclined, please go to Cash App and contribute. You guys know what we're... Uh, oh, sorry. And again, if you are not interested in becoming a patron, that will serve us well because, again, any contribution really makes a difference. And look at this lovely thing from Jesse Sanders. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Why do we seem to have a ferocious voice for railroad workers? Like, wh- Why do we not seem? Well, here's oh. the thing. It's not that we it's not that we don't have a voice. It's not that we don't. It's that Bernie can't do it alone. 
This is something that AOC- We need more do. than one voice. Yeah, we need, if you want, if AOC is listening and somehow her people, this gets back to her, get your butt on the floor of Congress tomorrow and make a big deal about this. This is something where if you're really a leader of the progressive movement, this would be your opportunity. Same for Katie Porter, same for anybody else that can see that we're in a very dangerous time right now. And- Alex, be Katniss, be Katniss, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> And of course, if you want to go to patreon.com and sign up to become a patron Please. of our channel. Please, and or now we have small business money. sponsors. We definitely do. Shout out one more time to our first official small, small business, business sponsor, sponsor, Apex Insurance Agency, home and auto insurance based in my former residential town, Delray Beach, Florida. So by all means, yeah. give it a shout because we all need home insurance if you have one, hopefully. And also and if you guys are local- what else do we have going on this weekend? So we do have a very important event coming up on Saturday. Yeah. So as you guys know- Which we, you did tell Nick, right? Yes. Okay. He, I've, <laughs> I've sent him the banner. He's very well aware. <laughs> so just make sure if anybody is local and you would like to, especially if you're in plantation, got the word out there to a lot of our plantation people. I haven't and even if you're not, if you're within the vicinity of us, if you're in Broward, um, this would be a good, this would be good help to us if you would come out and support Nick for mayor. Um, Heck, if you just want to have a slice of pizza. Well, there's that. There's that. You could come out. And, and Jacaranda's got good food. Did I tell you I invited Robert Milley? I'm sure he'll be there. No, 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 no. He, he wanted to come and he can't because he's volunteering somewhere. But ah. he said, oh, he was very pleased and that he wanted me to keep him in the loop. We're yeah. building a network. We're getting the band back together. <laughs> band back. So we will see some good people. Yeah, uh, guys, come help nice us. Turnout. Yeah, come help us. We have an opportunity here with local politics. It's a, you're dealing with a very small constituency, a very small district. We actually have an opportunity to turn this around, um, and and that's what you get with local. That you will not feel that level of satisfaction on the national level, but you really can make a difference locally because even if you get a handful of people out canvassing. But when you're only dealing with one municipality, it's very doable and it and it makes it really levels the playing field, even though an incumbent may have more money. The localer, the more local you get, the more it levels it out. Word? It is now. It is. It's, I got you for one. All right, fine. I make things. Uh, up. I make up words, but it doesn't mean I can't pronounce them, the ones I know. Just Jen. Just Jen. Paul Gonzalez. Absolutely correct. Fetterman. Definitely. He's got. Great. He's he's not good. He has great political acumen. He knows what he's doing. I trust him to win. And this yet race. is so completely relatable. Oh, yeah. More so than Bernie, for sure. Yeah, I would agree with that. Bernie's very curmudgeon. Well, Fetterman kind of has this like Shrek like look to him, but he's definitely like cool and chill and he's got like little kids and he's just got this. He's warmer seeming, I think, even than Bernie. And he's six foot eight. And that's hard to come off as warm when you're like so big. He would definitely be, I don't know if he would be the tallest, but he would definitely be one of the tallest that's ever served. Um, the tallest president who ever served is Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln. He was six five, tallest president we've ever had. You're having like major history geekdom tonight. Imagine being six five in 1809. Yeah, well, that's crazy. 40. I, I guess you can around. figure around then. Yeah, like 1840, he was at his, uh, you know, 21. So yeah, 1840 being that tall. Yeah, it's crazy. That was giant then because yeah. people were generally smaller. That is the equivalent of basically being seven feet tall. So yeah, it's huge. Definitely a big deal. I think he had Marfan syndrome. What does that mean? 
Well, there's a disorder <clears throat> called Marfan's, M-A-R-P-H-A-N-S, I think. And there are certain characteristics of Marfan's people, and he definitely uh, fits that in a lot of regards, um, specifically being tall and lanky. And there's certain things, and there's affiliated with other health issues. And there's just something about okay. it. It has to do with like elasticity of, of your cartilage. And th there's a whole thing, but it's called Marfan's. And I think that, yeah. That it was never diagnosed because no one ever knew what that was then. I wonder if our biggest audience just happens to be because you just want to hear what we have to say and didn't care as much about what our crowd had to say, although I don't agree with that. Uh, or is it that they potentially are just catching up and a lot of people are watching late night? You know, the, the That's part is, of it, too. Yeah, you know, some of the podcasts, you know, they decide if they're trying to capture the audience, if they go at like certain times – like later, if you will. Not, well, here's the thing is that when we go at seven or eight, there's just a lot more competition. That's with true. More, with not, when I say mainstream, mainstream left, there's just more competition. So well, would you be willing to go at nine? Is that too late? Or do you think that's oh like- Oh my God, that's I'm like so a, like- Is that like a cutoff point maybe? I don't know. Guys, you would have to give us a suggestion where you think like the best times- But, be. I, you know, but then again, we didn't, we don't do this to have- it's not the live that matters to me. I agree with that. So it's so really about really putting good... out the content and it's also about, you know, building up a library of information. Like our job is to build a coalition and you do that by educating people on the issues. You can't just tell them that they're wrong. You have to educate. And that's the key thing that we do here. So it isn't so much about the live. Like I know it's kind of hard not to get into it when you see the numbers, but I think the sure. bigger issue is that. And, you know, we... We, you know, we do put in a lot of work. We do. I mean, Peter spends a lot of time like booking guests and doing that. We are a two person show. We now have three persons if you include Ben, but he shout out to Ben, shout out to ben here work. who does our um, TikTok. And I don't know, there's other things happening. Like we work thing. in concert. We, I, I right. give him right but, but, but it's really like us that plans and does all the programming. So it's not easy. So we would appreciate support. It'd be really we want nice. To, one more time, give a shout out to Carla Harrington, Jesse Sanders, Double Okay. We had some really generous contributions tonight. We are very grateful that you guys checked Thank in. Thank you, Jesse. I agree. Yeah. We have some really good content back, guys. Um, and that's what I tell people. Check us out. We're on Spotify. We're on um, we're on Apple Podcast. I was like, I can't think of it. it's iTunes, but um, I say Apple Podcast. Apple Podcast. But so yeah, Apple check Pod. out our and a lot of the stuff that we cover is not necessarily timely in a sense that when we talk about like environmental issues or criminal justice issues, and you look back at something from six months ago, it's likely still relevant. So I mean, we do cover certain news stuff, but when you look at our um, in depth interviews with authors and experts, I think that they're really like, they have longevity. Don't forget to join us on Friday at 1 p.m. for the debate. The big debate. Michael Schellenberger versus Ryan Grimm about the future of the clean energy. Let's be real, we're arguing about nuclear. We're we arguing about nuclear. They're gonna go, they're gonna argue about if there's a place for that in our transition, if it's necessary. I see both sides of it very, you know, and I- I'm a believer in him. I, Oh, I am definitely a believer in him. That's where it's at. I'm a believer in all candidates. If you want to talk about how you deal with the lithium factor when it comes to powering solar. Are you suggesting we just smoke well, a whole lot more and then we care less? Well, I'll leave you guys with this thought. Just remember, if you ever rate at evergreen content, there you go, John. So what I would say is that if you really want to see what real heresy is considered in the political discourse, if you bring up hemp. That is considered the biggest non-starter of them all. And why? Because hemp is a magical plant. It can basically do just about anything. And so as a result of that, 
that is going to be one of the big things we will talk about on Friday. Because there's no disputing that that is a big one. We're talking about hemp? We'll add it into the conversation. Why not? It's exciting. Yes, it is. See you Friday. Thanks for everything, guys. Bye, all. Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.